This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Geneco. At Geneco, an affordable organ makeover is just a simple financing away. Take control of your life with Geneco because it's what's on the inside that counts. Financed organs are subject to all legal default remedies, including repossession. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. And it's Musical Horror Week on Pod Cemetery, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and guys and gals and non-binary pals. <laughs> With 1974's Phantom of the Paradise and 2008's Repo the Genetic Opera. Moving into our first movie, 1974's Phantom of the Paradise... It was, in fact, written and directed by Brian De Palma, with uncredited support on the screenplay by Louisa Rose. This is before Carrie, though. Yes, this is before Carrie. Uh, After Carrie would come Scarface, The Untouchables, Bonfire of the Vanities, Carlito's Way, Mission Impossible, The Black Dahlia. Uh, So we've had him on the show before. Mm -hmm. And he certainly has a style, I would say especially in these older movies. The movie stars Paul Williams, William Finley, Jessica Harper, and Garrett Graham. We last discussed Paul Williams on this show, I believe, in the Secret of Nim episode, Mm. where he did the lullaby song, and the version he did played over the credits, I want to say. Dream by night, wish by day, Love begins this way Loving starts when open hearts Touch and stay Yeah, That's a good song. It really is. He uh, wrote Rainbow Connection. He did write Rainbow Connection and Old Fashioned Love Song by Three Dog Night and Fill Your Heart, David Bowie, and The Carpenters, We've Only Just Begun, and Rainy Days and Mondays. Holy shit. Yes, he is a prolific songwriter. Really, really excited to watch a film with him in it that he actually scored. Originally, he was just involved in writing the music for De Palma's original script, which was called Phantom of the Fillmore. And then De Palma asked him to play Winslow. And how this was going to go is he was going to play Winslow. Garrett Graham, who played Beef, was going to be Swan. And then Peter Boyle was going to be Beef. He was going to be Beef? Yes. Now, according to Williams, he was like, I am far too small to play Winslow. But I can do, like, Sneaky and Evil. So I'll do Swan. (laughs) And so then everyone got kind of pushed Uh, Peter Boyle, I don't know if he was ever actually involved or not, but they were talking about it. Garrett Graham is the one who said that he was originally supposed to be beef. Uh, So then Garrett Graham got shifted into the beef role. Now, Paul Williams has also, for the past decade or so, been talking about how he is writing lyrics to a Pan's Labyrinth stage musical with Guillermo del Toro. Wow. 
Yes, but I haven't seen anything about it in the past couple years. And even then, like 2019 or so, it was talking about how he talks about it. So, like, no details. But, I don't know, he's very public about it. Who knows? The movie also has, like I said, Jessica Harper in it. We've had Jessica Harper on this show before. Uh, She plays Phoenix in this movie. She was Susie in Suspiria. Yes. Interestingly... People talk about how this movie is sort of like side by side with Rocky Horror Picture Show, and I see where people are coming from, but I'll get to that in a second. She was Janet in Shock Treatment, the sequel to Rocky Horror. I have never seen that. Neither have I, but apparently she plays Janet. I've heard it's not good. Like I mentioned, there's a lot of comparisons between this and Rocky Horror Picture Show. I would argue this is a little bit more horror than that is. Yes, I'd say that this is more horror but Rocky's better. Rocky has catchier songs. Much catchier songs. I would songs. say. Uh, the songs in... And songs that make sense within the story. Well, also opera, right? Like, so that's that's a big difference. Uh, in this, they're making an opera, and the songs have to work for the story and the opera within it. And then there are moments where they're messing with things and things aren't right, and there's a bastardized version, and then the, the lead singer sings his own version. And so there's reasons why everything doesn't align perfectly. But in this, they're singing the songs diegetically for the most part, right? Like, when they're singing, everyone in this world knows they're singing, and they're singing for the purpose of singing. Like, this is a song in an opera that I'm going to put on in this universe, Versus Rocky Horror, which is one of those musicals where everyone just spontaneously breaks out in a song and everyone knows the words and the dance moves and everything like that. And it's never commented on. You know what I mean? So yes. it's it's sort of happening as part of the conceit of this world. So it's different there. Also, the weird thing is that this was a play before it was a movie, just like Rocky Horror. But Rocky Horror Play didn't premiere until this movie was already in production. And then this movie came out. After that play uh, (laughs) launched, and then that movie came out after this one. So it was like play, play, movie, movie. They just happened to be, it's like that's what the zeitgeist was at the time, basically. These sort of weird musical 70s sort of things. The 70s was just a time of embracing the weird, and then the 80s tried to squash it out. A different kind of weird, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) What is Phantom of the Paradise about? I mean, it's Phantom of the Opera, pretty much. Phantom of the Opera, it's Faust, it's Frankenstein, it's Dorian Gray, it's the Cask of Amontillado. Yeah, it's all those things. It's a lot of things, but basically what happens is there is a man who writes some music, he gets taken advantage of by a music mogul, and... He gets desperate, and he continues to get screwed over. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And weird things happen. Yeah. The movie is available to rent for $4 and buy for $10 on many services. Should people watch Phantom of the Paradise? This is going to be interesting. Don't consider me. I'll give my own opinion. I I think you should see it. I think you should watch it. I think you should be aware of it. It's not like it's a bad movie. It's just very... Like, I love all the weird stuff. That's not the problem. Uh, My problem is that uh, there are parts of it that are really shitty, and they just don't ever deal with it. Are you talking about how you kind of don't like Phoenix at one point in the movie? 
Well, no. Because that was something you mentioned while we were watching it. That does fucking suck. Then what are you talking about? I was talking about the treatment of women. Yes. And they just, I mean, like, you know, you're not supposed to think it's a good thing, but they don't deal with it. (laughs) The way, well, people are on many sides on this, whether this is a satire of the music industry or not. Some people say yes, some people say no. Some people say, yeah, it's a screed against the industry as it exists and yeah. publishers. Other people industry. say that it's an elevated example of all the interactions that happen in the music industry. And yes, Swan's terrible, but Winslow's not that great either. He's a megalomaniac before anybody does anything to him. He throws somebody against the wall at the mere mention of a possibility that someone else might sing that song. Like he is megalomaniacal and everything needs to be his way or it can't be that way at all. And there's a role that producers play in getting music made. Now, more often than not, it's the producers screwing over the artists. I will give you that. But sometimes artists are fucking nonsense and they don't know what's good and they don't know what people want. And that's what the producers are there for is to sort of like, you know, actually make something that's marketable and can be sold. Just because an art it comes out of an artist's brain doesn't magically make it perfect. You know what I mean? And I think you would argue that this isn't perfect, what he made. It's not even finished. Well, it doesn't make any damn sense. The songs do not make sense <laughs> together. Like, it's just like, what story are you telling? It does... It... It's all over the place when it comes to its references, yes. I don't think, honestly, you can read too much into the lyrics or you're that you're even supposed to it's supposed to evoke a feeling that needs to be applicable in general if you're looking to scour the word the lyrics word by word you're gonna walk away dissatisfied that's kind of not what like what the fuck does the rainbow connection mean it's not I what knew you paul were williams i knew you were gonna mean, say that it does yeah so like it's it's supposed to evoke a feeling and be applicable in many different ways and get you you may be thinking about, oh, have you felt somehow similar at some point in your life? Focus, when you're thinking about the story, the story is not in the songs. They will tell you how they're feeling in the songs, but don't look for the literal plot points in the lyrics of the songs, because they're not there. The I- plot points are <laughs> on the screen. They're happening. It's not one of those things where all the big revelations and all the big actions happen during the songs, because they really don't. I also dislike, and I get it, it's supposed to be weird and silly and bizarre, and that's all fine, but when you just do completely impossible things, it's just like, okay, so this is, so none of this is real. This is all just a farce. I would point you back towards... Rocky Horror. <laughs> When's the last time you watched Rocky Horror all the way through? That last half of that movie oh, that no. nobody talks about and nobody quotes is fucking nonsense. No, I... I love Rocky Horror, but that last half is clown town. Once it becomes fantasy, that's fine. But this is not fantasy. Are you arguing that this is fantasy? Well, I think there's fantastical elements for sure. We're talking about there's the literal devil in this. I, I I guess, but like I mean, that's not the type of fantasy that I'm thinking of. Uh-huh. I hate this the whole part where he is in the fucking jail. 
Oh. It is just so out there and just like, what is happening right now? He puts, he gets smack put on him and then he gets put in jail for life, which just, what? And then he gets sent to a jail that is owned by Swan where they take their teeth and replace them with metal. Mm -hmm. Which, okay, all right. And then he is able to escape by punching a guard and getting into a box in front of everyone and putting himself onto the truck. It's it's absolutely absurd. Yeah. But none of the rest of the film feels this absurd. Like, it just feels out of nowhere and it feels like in a black and white movie when, you know, everything gets like... Ridiculous. I think it's supposed to. And I don't like that. Okay. I I do not enjoy that at all. (laughs) So it's a taste thing. That's not a good or a bad thing because so I'm saying like I I really enjoy that. See it. I absolutely (laughs) think you should see it, but I'm not saying that this is a great movie. I would say it's pretty great. Okay. I really, really like this movie. So I would give you an unequivocal yes, you should watch this movie. I will, however, that said, I'm still recommending you watch it, no matter who you are. I would understand if you're like, what the fuck is this? But I still think everyone should watch this movie. (laughs) At least if you like Rocky Horror, because it's not Rocky Horror. It is not Rocky Horror. It's not. Do not expect it to be. Rocky Horror is way better. (laughs) It's just, it's just different. It's different. I like it. It's just different. Thank you. What a vibrant community. You can take our advice or leave it such that it is. When we get back, we will talk about 1974's Phantom of the Paradise. 20th Century Fox presents Phantom of the Paradise, a gothic horror story. What was that? A beautiful love story. A cinematic odyssey through the rock universe. From Greece to glitter and beyond. The story of a sound, the man who created it, the girl who sang it. The monster who stole it, and the phantom who haunts the paradise, the ultimate rock palace. Phantom of the Paradise. My music is for Phoenix. Only she can sing it. Anyone else that tries dies. The Phantom of the Paradise. There really is the Phantom. Phantom. All right, Kelsey, get us started. How does Phantom of the Paradise begin? With Rod Serling. Yes, that is Rod Serling for some fucking reason. It's great. (laughs) What he's doing also is he's kind of narrating. It's really weird. He talks about Swan and Swan's history, and he says things about Swan that are kind of ridiculous, like he wanted to put his gold records in Fort Knox. (laughs) But then he talks about what this movie's going to be like, and he doesn't lie to you. But the way he describes it, 
he could be talking about Swan. Yeah. If you he, didn't know any better. He makes it seem like Swan is the hero of the The story. tortured artist who's going to get screwed over and yeah, but he's not. No, not at all. Now he is looking for the new sound of the spheres to inaugurate his own Xanadu, his own Disneyland, the paradise, the ultimate rock palace. This film is the story of that search, of that sound, of the man who made it, the girl who sang it, and the monster who stole it. And I enjoyed that. Yeah. That was fun. And I just, I love, I mean, who, if you're not a Twilight Zone fan. Right. What, what are, are you, you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? So just when it opens with Swan, he has no other name. Like, it's just like, ooh, <laughs> Twilight. You are entering. (laughs) We were very sad when they changed it. Uh, Yeah, that's the biggest downside. Uh, Granted, the Guardians of the Galaxy ride is a better ride. Period. It is a better ride. That said, the theming really, really miss the Tower of Terror theming. Loved it. And getting Rod Serling to come in the way that they did, where they had a guy, they cut a clip from a real episode, and as soon as his dialogue starts to change over, they cut to a different camera angle, and they have somebody else impersonating his voice. Oh, it's so good. It's really good. It was very cool. And it sucked that kids had no idea what was happening. Yeah. They were just like, who? What? (laughs) That's why they changed it. I Mm -hmm. get it. I don't care. Yeah. He tells us that this is going to be the story of the man searching for that perfect sound and the monster, the the woman who sang it and the monster who stole it. So he also told us about like how it's the nostalgia wave of the 70s. Yeah, where they go back and they like that's they why we have pretend the, to be like from the 50s. The Juicy Fruits acting yes. like a 50 sort of greaser band singing Goodbye Eddie Goodbye. And this is what I'm talking about here. Like, it's a story that has nothing to do with the plot, except for the fact that Eddie, that they're talking about, is a tortured artist who sacrifices his life. I wasn't listening to that, those lyrics. Yeah. I just figured mm-hmm. that was, you know, a silly 50s song. But what I re- was really upset by was that they just casually had a woman assaulted, and then they just moved on. Okay? Yes. That's what's going to happen in this movie. And yes, that is what's going to happen in this movie. And they're just kind of going to say like, oh, well, all of a sudden, one of the backup singers just jumps on a chick and like, well, he first he beats up a guy who I assume was the guy's the girl's boyfriend. And then he starts to like pretty much assault her. And then he just gets right back up on stage because it's like his part in the song and they're all looking at him like, get up here. And like he does. And then the okay. girl runs away. Interesting. And they just don't ever bring it up again. As soon as the song is over, everybody stops and looks up. And I thought that was a fun little moment. Yeah. Waiting. They look up at a box in the audience that's just dark. Waiting for somebody with gloved hands to clap. Uh-huh. And he does. And then everybody cheers. And then we get a discussion between this gloved person and the guy who works for him. Do you know what his name is? I never got his name. Philbin. Oh, Philbin. Okay. And Philbin is very upset because their last 
lady that they were promoting as a singer left to go be on her own because she was uh-huh. under a horrible contract. Yeah. And Philbin's like looking directly at the camera too. It's almost like he's going to narrate to us, but then he starts to have a conversation with us. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. Yeah. And he's explaining that she was more than a piece to me. She was the light of my life. Now, this is letting us know that he is a piece of shit. I yes. understand that. Uh-huh. But it also feels really strange because we're never going to hear about this woman ever again. No. And it's just a very strange, like, I get that they want to show us what kind of a person he is, but it seems strange to do it with a character that we're never going to hear about again. It also doesn't make a lot of sense, considering what we know about the contracts that he makes. Yeah, he makes certain blood contracts. We don't know that that was one of those. I I don't know that he made a blood contract with the Juicy Fruits, for instance. (laughs) And every contract is different, and I can tell you exactly why uh, when we get towards the end of the movie. But so he tells him, you know what, this really isn't that big of a deal. You've forgotten about the paradise. And it's this new, well, he calls it a club, but when we see it later, it's very obviously an opera. Yeah. That was weird. No, I mean, you've never been in a club that has a stage? I think he's going to turn, like, a theater into a club. Oh, I guess it's just he's going to open it with an opera. Oh, oh. Okay. And there's probably stage performances all the time at this club, I would assume. Right. But it is an opera, like... With seats People are sitting. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. You could take those seats up. Yeah. So Winslow gets up to play a song. I guess it just really speaks to Swan. Because he's just like, oh my god, we need to have this song. And the guy's like, you want this guy? Talking about Winslow, and he says, no, I don't want Winslow. I just want the song. And he says, well, what do you want me to do about the guy? And he says, you'll think of something. Well, he doesn't think of anything. They just, they're just going to steal his music and then just try to completely ignore him. That's what he thinks of. He asks to take the music to show it to Swan, like the rest of his songs and all that. And then they just never talk to him again. Yes. So... When he goes to find him, Winslow is shocked. He's like, he heard me? He he liked my music? Like, he's not even... It's like he didn't even mean for someone to hear it. Right. Was he intending Swan to hear it? Or was he just taking an opportunity to play his song because he's passionate about it? Who knows? But we find out that Winslow has written an entire opera all about Faust. Even the idea, as Chris brought up, even the idea of somebody else singing his music was enough to really set him off. And the guy says, wow, you've got, you sure got some temper. And he goes, sorry, this is just really important to me. Uh-huh. So, you know, they're, they're establishing why he's going to go crazy. Mm-hmm. But I think anyone would. I mean, you wrote an entire opera and then somebody just took it. Sure. No, absolutely. But he is particularly volatile about it. Well, I mean, he could have just, like, you know, taken legal action, but I don't know. Yeah. Now, who knows what the situation was like back then. Nobody believed him. The cops are in Swan's pocket. We'll find out later. Yes. They will plant smack on him, which will get him life imprisonment. Not before he tries, like, a month later to show up. At Swan's Manor, Swanage is what it's called? Yes. And, and he, they're he, having auditions, in quotes. Mm-hmm. He hears the girl from Suspiria singing his song. Yeah, this is Phoenix, played by Jessica Harper. She does have a beautiful voice. Uh-huh. She really, really does. It's very deep, which you wouldn't expect from looking at her. 
you would expect kind of a high-pitched voice to come out of that face. Mm. It's not. It's very soulful and very deep and very pretty. And I'm surprised that she was not... A bigger thing? A bigger thing than she was. Mm Mm-hmm. But he hears her and he's like, oh my God, you have to sing my music, which is funny because the last time we talked about it, the last time he talked about it, no one could sing it. Right. But he's decided instead that, no, she can because she has a beautiful voice. He can rewrite the cantata to be about her. I think his biggest concern was that he already didn't like the Juicy Fruits. You know what I mean? Like they're just some corporately created pop fly-by-night group. I say fly-by-night, but they last, in some form or another, the entire movie. Yes. But maybe as an example of how they don't actually care for anything, they don't have anything personal, there's no personal investment for them, they get repackaged twice in this movie. Yes. Now, it's very upsetting to me because she is pretty much assaulted when she goes in to do her audition. Or at least it's an attempt. What what she finds out is that they're just taking him into a room to the casting couch and Philbin is throwing himself on them. She gets out immediately. The doors close and then they open right back up again. I don't think that was a time jump. I think that was just her realizing what was going on. Because we see this. him we see him immediately attack her yes. when she walks uh-huh. in. And then the doors close and then she runs out. And it's just really upsetting because this is not enough to deter her from working for this guy. Right. She equates this to Philbin and not the fact that Swan sort of manufactures this environment willingly. But, you know, there's this status to Swan. There's this aura around him of success and, you know, he's just this really great guy. And so people are blinded by that. And that kind of says a lot in the modern day. Yeah. um, I'm just saying, I don't think that she is behaving in a way that doesn't make sense. Just because she's able to compartmentalize that as Philbin being an asshole. I guess. But her her being able to sing this music is more important to her than having to navigate around folks like Philbin. I guess. And does not even for even once think, oh, my God, this is what's the, this is the environment that Swan created. I suppose so. Which might not be smart, but it's things that have happened to normal people repeatedly over and over again in real life. I do like the music that is played while he's when he's walking up to the house. Uh, the song says, I never thought I'd walk up to meet the devil. I never thought I'd get to meet the devil is such a fun song. It I is. really like it. Yeah. Never thought I'd get to meet the devil Never thought I'd meet him face to face Heard he always worked alone That he seldom rode or used a phone So I walked right up to meet him at his place But it's just played in the background. Yes. There's a lot of songs that end up getting taken out of this movie. The bigger ones they'll end up putting in the end credits. So they just kick him out this first time. But the next time he pretends to be a girl and like gets into the bed where all these women, yeah, there's an orgy that the that Swan is going to watch and like it's assumed, I believe, that these are the women that were in line auditioning earlier. I think so, and that this is all that they're there for is just to be sexual pleasure for Swan. 
And no one is upset by this. Nobody, I mean. Well, again, depiction isn't uh, endorsement. And Swan is very clearly an evil person. And Winslow ignores all of it because he is dead focused on his own stuff. Winslow is not a good guy. He may be our protagonist, but he's not a good guy. We'll see. Pretty clearly, he's a very bad guy. There's kind of nobody in this that's really... I think the closest you get to a good person is Phoenix, but she's blinded in several ways, and she ends up letting herself being taken advantage of in a big way later on in the movie. Yeah, and she has this, like, sudden... I guess what you say has to be right, that she just assumes that that's Philbin, because she will end up becoming romantically entangled with Swan, and she doesn't even question any of it. She doesn't question how he's treating the other girls. It, he does, she doesn't question the fact that the guy that tried to rape her works for this guy. Like, it just, yeah. it doesn't come into play, and that really, really bothers me. I yeah. do not enjoy... Watching a movie where it's like, oh, yeah, well, he's evil and you should just know that and, you know, just deal with the way he treats people and the way he treats women. And we don't need to talk about it because you already know he's a bad guy. No, I think this is them talking about it. They are saying this is bad stuff by making the bad guy do it. There is there is no way in the entire movie that Swan is ever, ever a good guy. I know. I get that. And there just doesn't seem to be a lot of comeuppance. Yeah, fair. But yeah, so because he pretends to be a woman, they end up planting smack on him, which, like I said over and over again, it's really stupid. He gets life and then he goes to this stupid. There's the great line. There is a great line. But I'm innocent. Life. But I'm innocent. Swan stole my music and framed me. I love that line. It's a, such a great delivery. And it's this weird sort of almost fisheye close-up in this stage production of a courtroom, you know, that's very fake and fantastical, almost like it's a play, something manufactured. You know, the legal system that he gets wrapped up in here is not actually justice. It's playing justice. It's a kangaroo court. Right, I understand all that, but I just feel like it would have been better if they had just made it where the guy, that Philbin, who works for Swan, mm-hmm. had done something fucked up to him. Something, I get that, oh, he has to have the teeth, because that's part of his crazy look at the end. Okay, so make it be that he was tortured by Philbin, and then they put that teeth in him, or whatever. It, it would have been more believable and better for me if it did not included all of this legality that is completely ridiculous. All of that, in my mind, is him continuing to get screwed by Swan, who is this beacon of society that everyone looks up to. And if he did something bad to Swan and all the the police, the criminal justice system, the prisons, it also is a commentary on corporate owned prisons are all in Swan's pocket and he continues to bury and torture this man. I think you are getting what you're asking for, just not in the way you're asking for it. I feel like if you're going to go fantastical and ridiculous and absurd, that needs to be your whole movie. 
not randomly placed in the film. Yeah, I don't know. I I just disagree because I don't know, I feel a lot of the movie is bombastic and ridiculous and I struggle to find a moment in the movie that's just normal because I don't think there is one. So when when you say that I don't understand why this is so weird just right here in this movie in this one moment and then it's never like this again, I think it is like that a lot of the movie. Not the way the characters behave, mm. not the weird things that they do, just the fact that it's just so blatantly this could never happen that bothers me. It really, really bothers me. Unless the entire film is blatantly, none of this could really happen. I see what you mean. It's, I mean, it's the same issue that I had with a couple different movies about your suspension of disbelief. You can suspend the disbelief for the, you know, face gets caught in a record press, puts on the mask, gets the vocoder. Like, all of that is part of the premise of the film, needs to be accepted if you're going to watch the movie. And then there's other things that, for you, are just a bridge too far. Yes. Okay, fair, fair. I get it. Yes. But yeah, so he, like we said, he ends up hitting a cop and gets himself out in a box. After he had his teeth replaced. After he had his teeth replaced. Okay, so that's so the it, beginning of his transformation. Interestingly, one of the producers, uh, Ed Pressman, who's the one that they always mention, apparently, he's some great producer. He produced Crow. He produced uh, American Psycho. But Pressman, he's part of the, the Pressman family, who owns the Pressman Toy Company, or Toy Corporation. For instance, our copy of Chess upstairs is a Pressman copy of Chess. So they just filmed this in one of his toy factories, one of his family's toy factories, which I thought was pretty awesome. It's like, just actually, it is a toy factory. They didn't have to gussy anything up. But when he gets out, he goes immediately to the record company. And I forgot, the reason that he freaks out, the reason that he has this, I've got to get out of here, is because he hears the Juicy Fruits on the radio yes, playing one of his it. songs. Yeah, uh-huh. And good morning, everybody. This is Wendy Craig here on WCHT. Well, Swan has another golden disc to deposit in Fort Knox. His fabulous group, the Juicy Fruits on the death label, has taken the charts by storm. And get this, kids. Friday night, you can see the Juicy Fruits live at the grand opening of the Paradise. That's right, Swan's Rock Palace is scheduled to open at last. And with this dynamite sound, so let's hear it again. The Juicy Fruit singing Swan's Faust. That's when he's like, fuck this. You wouldn't like me when I hear my song sung by the Juicy Fruits. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And he ends up going to the record company. I'm not quite, I don't remember what what the reason was that he went there for. I think he was trying to destroy the the records or whatever, but he ends up getting caught in a record press and is maimed that way. Yeah, half of his face is really destroyed. And then, for whatever reason, Swan allows people to think that he died, which is odd, because at this point, Swan has smeared his name, has made it seem like he tried to steal the music, Uh and that's why he went to jail, and now he's le- he's okay with everyone thinking that he's dead. Yeah. Unless maybe Swan th- also thought he was dead. Maybe I'm not he did. sure. I don't know. But 
He is not. He survives, and he ends up going to the paradise, and he takes one of the costumes, which is where he gets his mm-hmm. thing, where Including he gets his mask. The the bird mask, which, if you're a fan of manga or anime, Berserk, there's a character in Berserk called Griffith. He has a helmet that... I swear to God, is just this helmet, except it has a chin piece. Otherwise, it is this mask. As we all know, Daft Punk, they've explicitly stated that their whole aesthetic was inspired by Winslow in Phantom of the Paradise. They call it their favorite film and the foundation for a lot of what we're about artistically. And Paul Williams, who composed the music of this film, he's Swan, is on Random Access Memories. He wrote and performed for that. He did Touch and he did Beyond. Two songs which Edgar Wright, the director, described as missing songs from Phantom of the Paradise. Really? Yeah. Uh-huh. He described it that way because that's what they feel like to him. At a 40th oh. anniversary screening of this, they had a Q&A session and that's he was the host. And so that's how he describes it. Uh, and when they won a Grammy for that album... Paul Williams was the one who accepted it for them because they don't talk when they're in in their outfits and everything like that. Uh, He described this in a later interview as, quote, so swan to accept the recognition in the Grammy for somebody else. Very swan. Yeah. uh (laughs) So he goes there. He gets all gussied up and he sees that the Juicy Fruits, who are now the Beach Bums, and they're basically supposed to be the Beach Boys, mm-hmm. are performing one of Winslow's songs, but now it's about his Woody. Yes. The car. Mm-hmm. It's like just a further bastardization of his music. Mm-hmm. I was not myself last night. Lost the fight. My Woody barely running. Come on, let's get it going over here. And so what does he do? He puts a bomb in a car that they're going to use. Straight up TNT, like a bundle of TNT in a, in a trunk of this fake car. And Brian De Palma does a really, really cool thing, which he would do again, kind of in Carrie. So he does the split view. Carrie, during the prom scene, they do the same thing where you see Carrie looking everywhere. And yes. then the other half of the screen shows you what, what's happening as a result. Yes. He does something very similar here. But this way, it's just a way that we can get two angles on the same scene. And the left shot can stay on the trunk of the car the entire time, which is a throwback to Touch of Evil, where there's a bomb in a trunk of a car. And the camera stays on that extended period of time. It's a big one because the audience knows the bomb is going to go off. Hitchcock talks about that, about putting a bomb under a table and, you know, all of that. It's an awesome scene. I fucking love the scene just because it is legitimately tense and it's well shot. Even in this ridiculous movie, absolutely ridiculous movie, you get a really well done scene here. And yeah, they're putting the car into position and then it goes off and it I don't know if it kills anybody. It definitely hurts people. Well, I wrote down he made the car explode, but no one got hurt. I feel like maybe somebody, one of the beach bums got hurt or something. I don't know. It it didn't go off until it was off stage. And everybody, like, from what I remember, everybody had already gotten off of the car. And then it went off. Yeah, I think they got off of the car. It was still on stage, but they got off of the car. And then it exploded. But this is my point. Winslow did this. Yes, he's getting justice. But is this justice? Absolutely not. No. He's yeah, hurting is, innocent people. Winslow's a bad person. This is Phantom of the Opera. Yes. This is him... 
Exactly. The Phantom of the Opera is a bad person. Kelsey. I disagree. <laughs> he is a bad person. He kills innocent people. Yeah. Um, after <laughs> a lifetime. He because he doesn't get his way. No. Boo-hoo. After a lifetime of being disregarded and mistreated. Right. But is that justification for his behavior? I don't think it is. He is a compelling villain. Which is what I like about Phantom of the Opera so much. He is a villain, but he is very compelling. And he's sympathetic, sure, but he's still a villain. We disagree. Yeah. <laughs> but so Swan figures out very quickly that it must be Winslow. Yes. When that happens, he is very quiet and stoic and like, mm-hmm, okay. <laughs> Yeah, because Swan has shit going on that we don't know about yet. Yeah, uh uh-huh. But so Swan is just like, hmm, all right, so I can't beat this guy. What do I do instead? Use him. Mm Mm-hmm. You can't beat him, so you might as well fucking use him. So when Winslow meets Swan, like confronts Swan, Swan's able to talk his way out of it. Yes. Practically laughing at Winslow Just like, God, what is that horrible sound you're making? Can't you talk? Like, you know, like just treat still mistreating him. And yet he is still able to convince him to sign a contract. Yes, because that's part of this weird power that Swan has to just enchant everyone around him. And also it's it's almost like, you know, a sympathetic disgust. Like, I don't know a better way to describe that when he's like, you know, almost like a you poor thing. You can't even talk. Oh, your voice is hideous. Oh, you poor thing. That sort of thing, you know, where it's like, I can tell you what, you calm down and I will get you your voice back. In exchange, you will finish writing your cantata. And more importantly, he he demands, Winslow demands that it be sung by Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And... I think at this point, Phoenix is a backup singer. She is, yeah. For the Juicy mm-hmm. Fruits. And the, the reason- beach bums at this point. Right. <laughs> and the reason for that is because Winslow said, she's she's perfect, but I don't want perfection. I don't want anyone to be perfect because I'm the only one that's allowed to be perfect. So exactly. So just yes. put her as a backup singer. So they now- They bring in somebody else in her place to play the part because as far as Swan's concerned, he's like, fuck Winslow. I'm just using him. Right, but he tells Winslow, okay, fine, we'll make her the star, you'll rewrite it for her, trust Mm -hmm. me. And even though- Trust me. (laughs) Yeah, but even though Winslow certainly doesn't trust him, he still signs a contract that he doesn't understand, and when he asks Mm -hmm. Winslow what things mean, it's very obvious that Winslow is lying to him. And yet he still signs it. And I'm just oh, like, so I don't... good. There's a line in there that says, all articles which are excluded shall be deemed included. What does this mean? He asks. And Swan says, that's a clause to protect you, Winslow. Anyway, what difference does it make? What choice do you have? Yes. Like, you know, it's he's very much, you know, the devil in Faust. But we see this scene working in a real studio there's all this like synthesizer, like it's like a Moog modulator, like sort of thing going on or all around the room, all these dials and knobs and plugs and things like that. And Winslow is playing and he's singing one of his songs and Swan is in the other room making adjustments and everything until he gets this, the, the voice perfect. And when he says it's perfect, that's when the voice is 
Paul Williams. Because he's the one who sings all the songs. Yeah, right? yeah. At four, Winslow, mm-hmm. when he gets him his new voice, he thinks that Winslow's new voice, which is just Paul Williams, is perfect, which I think is really funny. That is funny. Here's the thing. According to William Finley, the guy who plays Winslow, in this like Q&A thing that he did, the voice and the box on the chest for Darth Vader was taken directly from this movie. Now, it could just be him being, you know, maybe sour grapes or something like that, right? Because his movie didn't do well and Star Wars did really well. He finds the connection and, you know, uh. But he claims that the editor of this movie, Paul Hirsch, who also edited Star Wars, told him that he said to George Lucas, what are you doing? Everyone is going to know where that came from. George said to him, nah, they're not. (laughs) You know, he like a helmet, the distorted voice, the box on the chest, the cape, like... Oh, my gosh. Now, if that's not enough for you. Oh, my gosh. The film school generation of directors. I don't know if you've heard that term before, but I think you'll know it when I describe it to you. These are sort of like maverick young directors that came out in the 60s and 70s that went to film school, which like wasn't a thing really before that, and now graduated and started making their own films and really shaking up the movie industry. They sort of reinvented American filmmaking. When you say the film school generation of directors, there are five specific directors that are associated with that title, sort of like the Brat Pack of directors, right? And those are Steven Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, George Lucas, and Brian De Palma. They were friends. They knew each other. Like, they were in the same sort of circles of directors. So, like, I believe 100% that George looked at this, thought it was cool, and he could you know, apply it to his whole like samurai thing that he had going for him, sort of mix that, make it all black. And he has his new villain. I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with that. I just think it's interesting that Darth Vader is Darth Vader, or at least looks the way he does in part because of this movie. It's kind of shitty that, (laughs) that he just sort of took it. Just doesn't give a shit. Just, they're not going to fucking know he was right, but he was right. Yeah. That sucks. I also think it's interesting that Brian De Palma is in that group of directors, considering that he doesn't exactly have the same uh, clout that the other four do. Well, they were big, especially back then. I mean, Sisters and Scarface. Like, he he did a carry. He did a lot at the time. He's not so much a big thing anymore. You just sort of, like, recognize his name. But he's not, like, making hits anymore. His most recent, like, big movie was probably The Black Dahlia 15 years ago. Yeah, that wasn't that great. Mm -hmm. Since then, he's only made a handful of movies. He did not turn out the way that the others in that group did. But I guess you could say the same thing about George Lucas. What's the last good thing George Lucas has ever made? George Lucas doesn't need to make anything anymore. But, I mean, that's my point. Like, I'm just saying you can't disqualify him because he's not making good movies anymore. Because neither is George Lucas. I should point out, hate Scarface. I've never seen it. I am not a fan of Scarface. And it's almost like... I hate to do this. I swear I thought this before I heard this, but John Mulaney put it into like the perfect terms for me because I never did. I saw Scarface when I was younger and I didn't like it. Loved Godfather. And so the way John Mulaney describes it, it's like I have friends that'll be like, yeah, I like movies like The Godfather and Scarface. Oh, yeah. Well, my favorite foods are lobster and Skittles. (laughs) 
Those are equal in my eyes. Scarface is not, it might be a fun movie, but it's not absolutely not Godfather level of good movie. Sorry, I hate to break it to you. (laughs) All you college age men with the Scarface posters on your wall or the Scarface t-shirts, you know, like. Whenever I see that, I'm like, oh, you don't have any film taste, <laughs> which is really arrogant of me, I know. Then we get to meet Beef. I smell like Beef. Who beef. is great. Beef is great. Okay, so yeah, he's Beef. so funny. Beef is Garrett Graham, the guy who was originally going to be playing Swan. That would have been an interesting. Yeah. That would have been weird. And they couldn't quite, according to him, they couldn't quite describe the character they wanted him to play. Uh, he's told this story several times. I've seen it in several different places. They're like, no, like uh, uh, bigger, more flamboyant. Think Little Richard. And so he just busts out this voice and they're like, yes, that, that is exactly what we want. And so he doesn't sing, but he does all the acting and everything like that. It's somebody else singing. Man, you better get yourself a castrato for this because it's a little out of my range. It's a whole hell of a lot of fun. This, he's literally the only part of this. I mean, aside from the fact that it's from the 70s and it's a musical, like, he is really the only part that I'm like, oh, this is why people compare this to he Rocky He feels horror. very Rocky Horror. He, he does. feels very Rocky uh-huh. Horror. He's got, like, a perm, and he's a, he's a big buff guy that's very effeminate. But it's this whole glam rock scene, and then you'll see later when the Beach Bums previously... The Juicy Fruits become the undead, yes. the undeads, and they, they wear have this black and white yeah, makeup uh-huh. just like Kiss did. Yeah. This movie didn't come out until after they had come out. Yes. Well, Beef is great. He is a lot of fun, and he's, I love that he's this big, masculine looking dude, and then he has this really high pitched voice and is uh-huh. very much a queen. It's, yes. it's, it's a lot of fun. He's, he just, he knows exactly who he is, and he's not afraid to show it to anybody. He has a ton of attitude. He's very drag queen esque, but yes. he's not. But he's, he's not, not in drag, no. And he's supposed to be straight. Yeah. But it's just the whole glam rock thing. You know how everyone thought that all those hair bands, just why are they looking like a bunch of women? Like um, Twisted Sister, they dressed up like women, but like in exaggerated ways. But they were they were masculine dudes and they were all straight as far as I know. You know, that was just kind of what became a thing then. And it was shocking to everybody at the time. <laughs> Beef, Garrett Graham, is Franklin, the father from the critic, which some of you out there will know exactly what I'm talking about. As the first black female head of the Ku Klux Klan, I'd like to say America stinks. But so to get rid of Winslow again, um, after he finishes rewriting his cantata, they end up sealing him in. They give him drugs and then they seal him in with bricks. So I suppose this is another one of those ludicrous moments when he ends up busting through the bricks but like because of his rage right but like at this point like i don't mind that because he's turned into like a super villain at this point you know yeah uh before that he was just the mild-mannered winslow right Mm -hmm. now he's this ridiculous guy and like it doesn't bother me because that's just part of you know become becomes this kind of silly hokey like Comic book movie. So if that helps people understand what we mean when we talk about things going too far beyond acceptability, 
in something that's already ridiculous. Uh, this is what Kelsey, I think this is a great example of it. When he does something that's absolutely ridiculous later on in the movie, after it's already established that he is the supervillain, fine. When he's just some dude and he does the same thing, when there are all these guards and everything, he's basically, in, he is in prison and he just gets out in the back of a truck and they just let him go. That too far. Yes. Yeah. Too early as too well. Too early. I think it's probably too far because it's too early. Mm -hmm. If he had done this as the Phantom, maybe it would have been okay. Yes. Yeah. Probably. Before he does break out, Beef has a great line. Oh, I knew I shouldn't be screwing around with the dead man's music. This place is possessed. What are you talking about? You trying to tell me you didn't hear that shriek? That was something trying to get out of its premature grave, and I don't want to be here when it does. And without even knowing it, he's describing the Phantom. Yes. So that's a lot of fun. Yeah. The Phantom scares Beef by telling him... Uh, <laughs> the plunger scene in the... Okay, a reference to Psycho, right? Apparently Brian De Palma makes a lot of references to Alfred Hitchcock work. But yes, there's a shower scene... He's got the hair net, uh, yes. the, the, the head hair cap on thing, uh -huh. shower cap, and he just plunger right to the face, and he says to him, Never see my music again. Not here, not anywhere. Do you understand? Never again. My music is for Phoenix. Only she can sing it. Anyone else that tries, dies. Ah, <laughs> oh, so cool. <laughs> yes. I wish it wasn't with a plunger, because it makes it... It makes it funny. It makes it gross. <laughs> Makes it super nasty, in my opinion. Like, <laughs> well, just assume it's a plunger that's never been used. I get. Well, it, it obviously is. Yeah, yeah, it looks unused, but it's mm -hmm. it's an uncomfortable, gross thought. It's important to know that prior to this, beef is high. He's been snorting cocaine like a lot. <laughs> to hear the actor describe it, Garrett Graham said uh, it was just powdered lactose. The problem was it doesn't dissolve well. You just end up snotting it out. <laughs> I know. He said it was terrible, and he was really upset because it was his idea. Oh. And then he regretted it because they loved the idea so much they did a bunch of takes. Hmm. Because they wanted to make sure it made it into the movie, and now his nose was just full of powdered milk. Gross. <laughs> Gross. So he tries to book it out of yeah, there. Yeah, he tries to leave, and Philbin stops him. This is the day of the performance, by the way. And he's just like, I know drug reel from real real. And I this love is that real, line. Real. I love that line. It's so good. <laughs> but Philbin just gives him more drugs and convinces him to go back. And he, it's more like he's accepting the fact that, fuck, I'll die if I leave and I'll die if I stay. I might as well put on a performance, you know? Yes. I absolutely love the stage that they create for the actual oh, yeah, uh -huh. uh, musical. Hey, guess what that looks a lot like? It reminded me of Cabinet of Cal Dr. Caligari. Exactly. It's this whole German impressionistic thing mm -hmm. uh, that's very much Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yes. Very referential movie, this. Believe it or not. <laughs> there is some weird stuff. It's like... They're putting on a show and like it, they act like they're cutting up audience members. Yeah, they pull like dolls out of the audience and then cut. But, but how those dolls were already standing and like nobody noticed that they, oh, they were, were just there. like in the seats. I'm sure people did. The point is the people across the audience see them yanking something out of the audience and then cut its head off or whatever. Yes. You know, grab somebody's hand in the audience and slice the arm off. 
like with their guitars. Yes. Now it's just it's just fun. Even if you don't believe it, even if you're not like, oh my god, what just happened? It's still just fun. <laughs> That's the Undeads, by the way, that we talked about earlier. Formerly the Beach Bums, formerly the Juicy Fruits. A lot of what takes place on the stage, like it's it's definitely like a reproduction of Frankenstein, but it's funny because yeah. the way that Beef is dressed up and the way that he sounds made me not immediately think of Frankenstein. I immediately thought of Rocky Horror. And I was like, oh! Which is Frankenstein. Yeah, and then yeah. Chris had to remind me, yeah, that's Frankenstein. I was like, oh, fuck! <laughs> <laughs> You're right. <laughs> very, very, very much so. But he ends up getting electrocuted live in front of everyone. In, in a fun way that I actually really enjoy. The Phantom fucks with everything with this lighting rig. And it's literally like this neon lightning bolt, which is part of the set. And then he, you know, throws it down and it electrocutes him live on stage. Yes, in both movies we watched this week, somebody died live on stage. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> so then, just like in Phantom of the Opera, I mean, literally, this is exactly what happens in Phantom of the Opera. Somebody dies on stage in front of everyone, and then they just put on another scene. Yeah, they, they close the curtains, Philbin turns to Phoenix and says, you have to sing. And she's like, what are you talking about? I'm just a backup singer. And he's like, somebody died tonight because of you. You're going to sing. So she gets out there to sing this song and you're listening to the lyrics and you're just like, I don't know where the hell this would have happened in the show. Oh, I also yeah. love it's that not it's, a cohesive show. I, not at all. I also love that it's a love song and it's like she's not singing it to anybody. She's just uh -huh. singing it to herself. It's, but it captivates it, this audience that's gone mad. Because she, yes, and because she has a beautiful voice. is a very good singer so it's just like who gives a shit that this obviously has nothing to do with the rest of the show you mm -hmm. know yep uh so she sings this beautiful song she loves the applause she loves being famous and because of that she's like i'm just gonna be with swan yeah she, swan she makes it like an immediate turn to swan is the yeah. one who gave me this part and it's just uh -huh. like now chris told me and I agree. I understand. Chris was like, she has no reason to believe Winslow. I understand that. You're right. She has no reason to believe him. She met him once, and then the next thing she heard was that he was crazy, tried to steal the music, is mm -hmm. dead. You know, okay, fine. And she has Swan whispering in this ear, and yeah. Uh -huh. But it just... She's not a great female protagonist she does not embody female no. empowerment not at all she does not make you feel good about wanting to be famous like it just feels very like as soon as you know what it feels like you'll do fucking anything for that feeling right which like, is why ah! I, I don't think that this movie acts as an indictment of greedy 
production companies in general. I think it's an indictment of the music industry as a whole. Everyone. Everyone! You know, it's not a great industry. Yeah. If that's what they're saying, then they made that clear. Mm -hmm. According to Paul Williams, nothing like this ever happened to him. He was never taken advantage of by greedy producers or anything like that. He doesn't like hold a grudge specifically over anything. But that's just Paul Williams. I don't know about Brian De Palma. So the Phantom tries to get through to her, but he can't because she's already sleeping with Swan and she's just like, you're a freak. And like goes and tells Swan the freak who killed that guy that killed Beef is out there. And, yeah. it, and it just sucks. It's a really shitty moment because it's just like, mm-hmm. and, and I get it. I get it. I get it. The character probably wouldn't know him and all that. That's fine. And we but, need this tragic moment for what comes next. But as the audience, it's just like, that's really shitty. Yeah, it's tragic. But again, Winslow might deserve your sympathy, but that does not mean he's a good guy. He's going to come up and he's going to watch them that night from the the skylight. Phoenix and Swan making out on a bed. They're going to have sex. Swan turns on the cameras on the roof and sees that he's being watched by Winslow and is like, all right, cool. This is going to fucking crush him. Mm -hmm. And so he kind of sort of lets it happen. And the Phantom, in his despair, stabs himself in the heart with a knife. Yes. And then Swan shows up on the roof, maybe sometime later. Winslow's not dead. Swan tells him, you cannot die. You're not allowed to die. Our contract specifically states that it terminates with me, not you. Your death doesn't end this contract. And since you're still beholden to the contract, you can't die. So then he, Winslow, stabs Swan. So like this immediate turn. So first of all, there's like a what a twist moment with the contract thing. You can't die because I don't want you to. And then immediately they're like, how else can we apply that? Swan can't die either. He's part of a contract of his own. Yeah, yeah. He stabs him and he's like, I'm under contract too. I'm under contract too. And it's not till later at like at a show, this elderly woman tries to get a get try to get Swan to stop and talk to her. And she's and all these girls are like, what are you doing here? And she's oh, just yeah. like, I went to school with him or whatever. He was my high school sweetheart. Uh-huh. Here, look at this picture I have of the two of us. And they're like, but you're old enough to be his grandma or his, yeah, mother, his mother or whatever. Or something like that. Oh, he aged really well or whatever. Yeah. I kind of love that it ends up being that he has he's in a contract with the devil. Yes. I think that is fantastic. Now... Dorian Gray is one of my all-time favorite books. Yeah. Am I a little perturbed that they used that premise and did nothing with it? A little bit. Yeah. There's like a little, there's a few moments that are references to other things that are just little drops. For the most part, this is the story of Phantom of the Opera and Faust, sort of like mashed together. But then there are all these other references around it. And yes, Dorian Gray is one of them. So when we end up seeing the videotape of him talking to the devil. Which the Phantom breaks in on the second night and finds. Yeah, 
I forget why. I'm sure I have it written down. But he breaks in and he finds this tape to watch. What is the tape? Ostensibly, when he starts it, what does he think he's watching? I don't know what he thinks he's watching, but it it starts with Swan talking to the camera saying he's going to kill himself. That's what Swan originally intended this video to be. And that's what I mean. He's sitting in a bath and he's going to videotape himself committing suicide. And wouldn't that be wonderful? And it's also an indictment of like television as well. You know, what people will put on the air, mm-hmm. live on television, you know? An assassination live on television, coast to coast, that's entertainment. But that doesn't happen. He doesn't end up killing himself. And why? Well, because his reflection starts talking to him, and it's the devil taking on his reflection. And he asks him, you know, why are you doing this? And he's like, well, I'm too beautiful to to, to age. Yeah. I can't stand the idea that it's only going to get worse from here. So I better get out while the getting's good. So the devil's like, well, look, if you're going to kill yourself, then you're going to go to hell anyway. So what do you care if you just sign a contract with me? You can be beautiful forever. Mm -hmm. And then I get your soul at the end. And it seems like a really bad deal for the devil. Because the devil already said, yeah, I'm going to get your soul soul either way. Yeah, uh uh-huh. So why bother? He likes causing chaos. Uh, and he knows that that's exactly what Swan's going to do. Maybe he's directing him down this path. He knows as soon as this happens, Swan will be corrupted. You know, there's all sorts of things. He could just be having fun, just dicking around. But the penance for Swan is that he has to watch this film every single day. The reflection in the film will age instead of him, just like Dorian Gray. I uh, I didn't understand quite what he was talking about, because because it's obviously the picture of Dorian Gray, I figured he was talking about a painting or something. I kept thinking, we're going to see that painting. We're going to see him old and decrepit and disgusting, and we never do. No, I mean, uh, okay, that, so... That pissed me off. Here's the thing. I don't know if they're just like, you know, Paul Williams, he's very cherubic right like you know he's got that sort of face where he kind of looks like like what's his face um the actor who was always a kid actor and then he got into like his 20s and 30s he still kind of looked like a he's like an overgrown burnt out kid mickey rooney right like that sort of thing so i don't know if they were just going like hey we're just gonna play it and this is paul williams in this wig is going to be you know, this young guy who thinks he looks beautiful and all this, or if that was supposed to be the aged version of him. Because Paul Williams wasn't exactly a young dude at this point. I don't know. I couldn't tell. I was just unhappy. It's a little confusing, yeah. It felt like, let's just drop this in here. It'll be a fun little reference. And it was yep. like, it would have been a lot cooler if you had taken the time to build that, but okay. <laughs> yes, no, I agree. But the movie is only so long, so... The Phantom destroys the film and sets all of the vault and everything in it on fire. And we find out at some point that Phoenix has also signed a contract. Yeah, he also watches video of her signing a contract as well. Uh, And she thinks it's to, maybe it's for her record deal, but 
It's also, like, she's also going to get married to him. I don't know what she thought she was signing a contract for. And and when they show that she's doing it, she seems really flighty. It's like Like, she's drugged. drugged? I think she's drugged. Yeah. Uh And he's taking advantage of her, which, again, more commentary. Yeah, they're going to get married for the second night of the cantata. Since she took over the role, obviously, and everyone loved her instead of beef. Again, what is this story? (laughs) Uh, like Kelsey said, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense the play within the movie. Mm-hmm. But part of it is when this all ends, they're going to have a wedding live on television and in the paradise between Swan and Phoenix. And what Swan is going to do is he's going to kill her. Yeah, I'm very confused about this whole plot that he has. It's very much like The Little Mermaid. He tells her, the only thing I want from you is your voice. And that's what she's signing over to him in the contract. But when he says, I want your voice to her. I want you to answer a question for me. Yes? What would you give me to sing? Anything you wanted. Anything? Would you give me your voice? I'll do anything you want. I owe you everything. Just give me that crowd again. Tomorrow night. Tomorrow night they'll be yours. Mine. And all I want is your voice. It's like it's it's after when she was supposed to be killed, because obviously she doesn't die because the Phantom fucks that plan up for them. And he says, give me your voice. But when he goes to her, he goes to strangle her. There is not like, a you know, an Ursula situation right, where he's yeah, taking uh-huh. her voice out of her body. It's like he's going to choke her to death. And I'm like, how does that get you her voice? I am confused. Yeah, I don't. I, again, I I agree with you. I don't think it's very clear. Let's talk really quickly before they get to the wedding portion. There's an opening act where these girls come out with these. They're supposed to be like, I don't know, like crows or whatever. So yeah, they've got like uh-huh. black uh, bird feathers and stuff. I didn't like those costumes. Neither did they. I didn't like the wings that they were holding. They they looked really weird. The feathers on the body were a bad choice. Because it's like a two-piece, sort of like, you know, bra and panties. Mm -hmm. And apparently they complained at the time that it looked like they were just, they just had overgrown pubic hair. It looks like hair. Uh Uh-huh. Which is not super attractive on the crotch and the boobs. (laughs) Yes, exactly. When you look close up, you can see... That it's feathers, but yes. yes, it looks like just a mound of hair. Yeah, and and also the wings are just really shitty. They're mm-hmm. like this thin material. And it's like that's not what a wing would look like. It's just it's really lame. I I was not impressed with the costumes. Fair. I think it's supposed to be extravagance. I don't think it's supposed to be something that you're like, ooh, I want that. I think it's just supposed to represent Swan's extravagance. But so after Winslow ruins the wedding plan because he hits the guy who's supposed to kill Phoenix. And instead that guy kills Philbin, who's acting as the priest. Yes. Mm -hmm. So now Philbin's dead. Yes. So that is when 
the whole place will th- like turn into chaos. Yes. Everyone will storm the stage. There's no more uh like there there's no indication of who's supposed to be on stage and who's not and nobody cares that Swan is attacking this woman because the 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 concert goers have gone crazy. They start attacking the the dancers and stuff like yeah, that. And it's uh-huh. just all this crazy chaos and in the middle of it Winslow gets down there and she ends up taking his mask off and we we don't see a lot of it. We just see a tiny bit of what his face is supposed to look like. And I'm surprised that they did that because it seems like that was probably a lot of time, either makeup or no, prosthetics. They, do you mean a lot by of time? Because you see the whole face. She He's like, he talks to her and his voice is all fucked up. We, but we only see the part that's fucked up only a little bit. At one point, the whole fucking thing comes off and his face is covered in like blood. His whole entire face, 100% of it. And he like, the, he grabs her and he's like, give me your voice or whatever it is he says. That's, that is Swan. I'm talking about Winslow. Oh, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Winslow, it's just the half of his face. Right. It's very, it's Phantom of the Opera and it's only the half. But we only get to see that half for a very short amount of time. And then when he's crawling on the ground, you get a better look at it. But my point is, uh-huh. it looked really good. Uh-huh. I don't know if it was prosthetics. I don't know if it was makeup. I don't know what they did. But it looked really good. And I'm su- surprised yeah. that it got so little time on camera. Mm. But she finds out that this crazy phantom who killed Beef is, in fact, Winslow. Right? That's how she finds out. He rips off Swan's face. This is what I was talking about. Yes. And you see his whole fucked up face. But it's it's kind of lame. It's, it's just, just his just... normal. It's it's Paul Williams' normal face with just some blood effects yeah, all over it. Yeah, with just some blood on uh-huh. it. And I was like, again, picture of Dorian Gray is a very, it means a lot to me. And this is what you gave us? He's supposed to be ancient. He should be this disgusting old man, like, who looks ravaged and evil. But we don't yeah. get that. It's just his face with some blood on mm-hmm. it. But this is where he he demands Phoenix's voice, and grabs at her throat. And again, we don't know. Is it going to be magical? No. He's, it feels physical, like he's just going to strangle her and somehow that gets him her voice. I don't know, but the Phantom stops him and stabs Swan. Now that the tape has been destroyed, uh, his contract is null and void because that acted as the contract. Yes. And stabbed him multiple times. Here's the problem. The only thing keeping the Phantom alive was his contract, which terminated with Swan. Didn't you read your contract closely? See what it says, terms of agreement. Can you read what it says? This contract terminates with Swan. So as soon as Phantom kills Swan, his chest wound from when he tried to kill himself opens back up again. Which I think he's fine with. I know, yeah, I think that's I think that's fine. I think it's a little poetic. It is. I actually really like it. And Swan's body gets like carried off by this crowd surfing. Crowd I fucking audience. love it. It's so <laughs> great. Because it's just like, ah, this guy! And they just pick him up yeah. and they don't care that he's dying. It is so great because at, at, like we said at this point the entire auditorium is just chaos phoenix goes down to winslow's crawling down on the floor now in this all this hullabaloo and tries to like comfort him and like no winslow no don't die and then she's there crying with him 
on the ground as this crowd comes converging in. Now, let me just say, because I don't know if I did a good enough job. I want to talk about the things that I really did like about this movie. Mm -hmm. The songs are great. Yes. They're very good. They just don't tell the story. They just don't make any sense plot wise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But they're very good. So I enjoyed that. And she's a great singer. And like I said, the one where he is walking up to the house of the devil is great. Uh, the song he sings at the very beginning is, it's decent. You know, they're, they're, the music is fun and good. It was nominated for both a Golden Globe and uh, an Oscar. Holy shit, this movie was nominated for yes. an Oscar. Those are the only nominations the movie got. That's nuts. Was, was for the original score. I really enjoy the Phantom's costume. Yes. That's a lot of fun. Man, if I was thinner, totally, I would be the Phantom. I would love to be the Phantom. Be hard to do the teeth. Yeah. But yeah, it'd be fun. I think that Swan is a good villain. Yes, he's. I think he's a great villain. I think he's a very yeah. evil good villain. I love the twist that it's because it's the devil contract. Uh-huh. I love that. I really enjoy Beef. He's a lot of fun. Like, there's... A lot I of the- good things. I I just wish that I wish that the movie itself was serious, and then all the things that happen in are wacky. Okay, but unfortunately, the movie itself is often wacky at times. And it's like, no, 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 no. I need my plot. I need my. Right. I need my anchored plot. <laughs> it seems to me I get the 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 impression. That one of the things that you don't like about it is how messy it is. Yes. Including all of its references, but also but also the plot, like you say. It's messy. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. I don't like messy things. Yeah, but for me, just a different perspective, when I see that, I'm sort of, I'm more like reveling in the chaos of it all. Because to me, when I when I see this movie, it puts me in that mindset to where this is gonna be wacky and chaotic. But it didn't do that for you, and that resulted in you having a different experience. And I don't think that's – I don't think I'm, you know, blinded by this movie and thinking it's good when it's not. I also don't think that it's, like, your fault, you know, that you did something wrong because you didn't like it as much as I did. Because it does some things that I can see why it would turn people off. Like, okay, like, think about a movie like House. Yes. House – from the moment it starts, you know what you're in for. And I was fine with that. This, it it slowly crept in. And I was like, what the fuck? The, the fuck? The yeah. fuck? What? what? And you, you didn't know? know that that was what you were in Right. For. That's not what I was expecting. Uh-huh. I knew this was a wacky movie. I had seen his costume. I had heard, like, a song from it. I knew that it was wacky. But... I guess just the beginning of the film doesn't feel that wacky. I, even though I described the fact that it does weird shit in the very beginning. I don't know. I don't know. No, I think you got it. Okay. I think you got it. I will also point out we didn't really talk about it, but there are moments where you will see very obviously post-production effects to put the Death Records label on things. Especially, there's a most egregious scene at the airport when Swan's giving a press conference 
I think it's where he introduces beef. Maybe I don't remember what, what that scene was, but you can see that the podium has death records on it. And it's kind of like floating there. Like it's not synced up very well. It's obviously a post-production effect. That's because it was always death records. That's why you can see physically printed props that say death records on it. And it's like a dead bird, which foreshadowing, you know, but Swan's publishing company that ran death records was called Swan Song Publishing. And Led Zeppelin, their management created their own publishing company called Swan Song. Mm. Found out that this was happening and then sued or was going to sue, threatened to sue. And so they had to go in and remove all references to Swan Song, which would have been a great name for a company, uh, and instead put that Death Records label over the top of it. Which is a bummer because I really like Led Zeppelin. Because I'm a hack. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what do you think the movie has on Rotten Tomatoes, Kelsey? I would guess like a 77. An 86. Okay. Brian De Palma's subversive streak is on full display in Phantom of the Paradise, an ebullient rock opera that rhapsodizes creativity when it isn't seething with disdain for the music industry. Has a Metacritic of 67. Overrated or underrated? It's a little overrated for me. I would probably agree. I don't think I would give it as high as an 86. I'm going to give it a 72. Okay. I can deal with 72 emotionally. I think it is a decent film. I think it is fun. I think there are cool things about it, but there are a lot of things I do not enjoy. I was going to give it like... I don't think I could go. I still think 86 is too high, probably. But I, I can't give it less than an 80. Uh, so I think I'm just going to go 83. Split the difference. Okay. I'll do 83. Okay. Not the biggest difference in our reviews that we've ever had, but it's over 10 points. Alien 3, we had a 10-point difference. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake, we had a 10-point difference. <laughs> not like that made much of a difference, but yeah. So it's not the biggest discrepancy we've ever had, but it's one of them. It might be on our end-of-the-year list. We'll see. That is 1974's Phantom of the Paradise, and we continue our operatic horror week, our horror musical week, with 2008's Repo, the genetic opera. Big difference between this is that this is more like an actual opera where the songs they sing Are very replace operatic. the dialogue, and it is very, it's like a rock opera, like Phantom of the Opera. So, And it has Christine in it, so. Yes, literally the original Christine Daae is in this movie, Sarah Brightman. Yes. Uh, so it's directed by Darren Lynn Bozeman, written both the screenplay and the original play. It's based on Darren Smith and Terrence Zadunic, or Zadunich, I don't know how you pronounce his name. Uh, that man is the grave robber in this movie, in case you were curious. This is sort of his baby along with Darren Smith. It stars Paul Sorvino Anthony Head, Alex Panavega, Sarah Brightman, and Paris Hilton. Like I said, it is based on a play. It was originally a stage play in L.A. and New York. The director of this movie, Darren Lynn Bozeman, directed one of those as well. So he comes from directing the play, ends up directing the movie version. Um, and apparently Anthony Stewart Head 
was picked specifically because I know a lot of you out here already know this already <laughs> uh, because of the once more with feeling episode of Buffy, which was a musical episode. They're like, oh, my God, he can sing, which was apparently one of the first thing times a TV show did something like. Yeah, that. Uh-huh, where, where they just had this weird sort of like. It's a musical episode, and it's built into the plot why it's a musical episode, because this show has all this magic and shit like that, and they're under some sort of spell. That wasn't the only time he sang on the show, but that was obviously the most famous one. What is Repo the Genetic Opera about? It is in the future when organs have started to fail all over the world. No explanation there. Well, I think it's just because we've ruined... The human body and our environment and... I guess. Our organs have started to fail. So, of course, you know, organ donation has become a huge thing. So, this company... Geneco. Geneco. I guess they create organs? I guess they develop organs on their own? Yeah, I don't know how they get their organs. Maybe they buy them off of people? Maybe. Who need money? Maybe. Or, you know... I'm sure it's something like that. Like they die and then they purchase it from the corpses or living people or whatever. I didn't know if they had developed Maybe they have. organs. I don't know. There's a lot of elective plastic surgery going on in this world. But the important thing is that the federal government has allowed the repossession of these organs if you can't make your payments. Right. So, yeah. So Geneco has become this huge corporation, which offers payment plans for organs but most people can't keep up with their payments so they, they get have repossessed repo men. Yes. yes which didn't they make another movie about kind of the same thing but it wasn't a musical so that movie repo men starring forrest whitaker and is it jude law, jude law. oh yes. my god i got it yes uh-huh. uh, and liev schreiber uh came out in 2010 Two years after this one did. Uh, And it's based on a book called The Repossession Mambo by Eric Garcia, which came out in like 09 or something like that. And you're right. I don't think I really heard anybody say anything about – it's a different movie. It's like an action movie, thriller or whatever you want to call it. It's not whatsoever anything like this. But that core premise – Repossessing organs. Yeah. uh That seems pretty niche. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but I don't remember there being a big deal about that. I mean, the movie didn't do that well anyway, so. Neither did Repo the Genetic Opera, right? Right, yeah. uh Yeah. But the main character is the Repo Man, and it's about his daughter, his relationship with his daughter, and how he's got a really fucked up relationship with his daughter. And the movie is very unclear about that relationship by the end. You want to talk about things that are unclear? It happens in this movie too. Absolutely. Uh-huh. I, oh, trust me. I, I think it's lot, worse in this movie. I have a me, lot of things to say that are not good about this movie. However. Well, we'll get into that in just a second. I want to say it's with subscriptions on Prime and Roku. You can watch it with ads on Tubi and Pluto TV. It's $4 to rent, $5 to buy only on Amazon and Vudu. on basically everything else. Kelsey, should people watch this movie? Go. Yes, if you like, if you like musicals. If you don't like musicals, this is not. Oh, yeah. You will not enjoy this because at least with Phantom of the Paradise, the songs are kind of. They're structured like songs. Yes. And they're put in intermittently. 
Yes. Whereas this, if you are not accustomed to musicals where people are singing practically all of their lines, you're going to hate this. Yeah, and it's very operatic. Yes. And not, I mean, it's not built in such a structure where everything rhymes and it's like a song, like a musical, where, you know, everything is broken apart into a song that has a beginning and an end and it has a structure, verse, chorus, verse, or whatever. This is not like that at all. And it's an opera, They're just basically so, singing dialogue. So people will literally sing over each other. Yeah. Uh-huh. So if you don't like that because you literally, literally, you have to pick a character to listen to yeah. and you miss what the other characters say. So it depends on if you like that or if you don't. And I wouldn't blame you either way. Yeah, I'm a huge... It's an acquired taste. <laughs> I'm a huge musical opera fan, so, like, this appeals to me, but I would totally 100% get it if you were like, what the fuck? I can't listen to all three of you singing at the same time. Yeah, it's a goth opera is what it is. Goth opera. It is so super fucking goth, and it's this sort of, like, industrial... Like, Okay, the lead singer of Skinny Puppy is in this movie, if that means anything to you. Like... That's the sort, like, if you were listening to Skinny Puppy or KMFDM or anything like that, you might like this movie if you're also a theater kid. Like, those two things combined, you know? The sort of goth industrial aesthetic and musical theater. Now, because we are both theater kids, I don't know, maybe Chris doesn't agree with me, but I saw a lot of problems from a theatrical standpoint, I, sure. like I, the the comedic relief of the brothers and the sister, oh yeah, wasn't uh-huh. there. No, oh no, 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 no. I have seen operas. I know what they were supposed to be. They yes. weren't it. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, they they didn't. I mean, the movie doesn't really have a very good um, chorus. I disagree. I love the song. That's pretty much all chorus. Um, at the at the it's. I'm sure. In the live version, I'm sure this is the song you come back to after the intermission. The everybody, everybody. Yes. No, that, so that song, it's like the song of the movie. It's not even that long. No, it's not. <laughs> it's very short. But it's like, it's very catchy and it does sort of pick up the energy. I think you're right. That's absolutely what they when must come have come back, back from, from intermission. intermission. A hundred percent. But like, I feel like the writer who is the grave robber, he sort of like acts Almost He's almost the like best the, part. The chorus. Him and Repo Man are my two favorite they're, parts. They're great. Well, of course, Sarah Brightman as well. The worst is the daughter. Like, I'm just like, I, her? You picked her. Oh, yeah. She has this really whiny voice yeah. throughout. And I'm yeah. like, I'm sure she has a great voice, but the movie doesn't let you hear it because she's just whining the entire time. Yeah. And like her rock song where uh, Joan Jett shows oh, up. Oh, my God. Yeah. Literally, yeah. Joan Jett shows up and it feels like I'm watching an Avril Lavigne music video. Hey, fuck <laughs> you. I like you know Avril Lavigne. <laughs> no, but you know where they're like, it, it's all accessories and it's all aesthetic and like punk rock chick. But it's like super poppy. Yeah. Like that's what it felt like. It was, it's. It is a tough song to get through. Uh-huh. It leaves a I bad agree. taste in your mouth. Now, that said, these are like the worst things that we're talking about here. Yeah. If the idea of a goth opera sounds cool to you, you should 100% watch this movie. I think you'll probably love it. Or you'll like it. Yeah, sure. Because there are things that it should have improved on. <laughs> but for everyone else, you might. Start this movie and go, what the fuck am I watching? (laughs) It's a little like that. 
But they I got mean, Sarah Brightman. Yes. No, but they're having fun. <laughs> you know, they got Paul Sorvino to sing a whole lot. <laughs> um, Miro Sorvino's dad, by the way. That's Mira Servino's dad? Mm-hmm. The guy from uh, Romeo and Juliet? Yeah, Romeo and Juliet. Oh, yeah, the guy from Romeo and Juliet, whose daughter was in Romeo and Michelle. Oh, how funny. <laughs> oh, how funny. So, yes, it's a fun, dark, silly, musical movie. That's, I guess, the way I could put it into the best light. And I think if you will like this movie, I think you already know whether or not you'll like this movie. Probably. You can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 2008's Repo, the genetic opera. By the middle of the 21st century, organ failure had become a worldwide epidemic. But Geneco was there to satisfy the demand for organ replacements. The problem is, if you miss a payment, Geneco sends out the repo man. And when he finds you, your time is up. Collect on the Handelman account at once. His payment is past due. She must escape. I'm only living out a Kelsey, get us started. How does Repo, the genetic opera, begin? With an exposition dump. Yes. <laughs> this, a lot of the exposition that happens in this movie that, because it's not like sung in a song or whatever, is just in a comic book. Mm-hmm. Which was fun. I liked sure. that. I think it reinforces this aesthetic that the movie has, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like the the stark, drab, dreary architecture with the bright colors and then blacks. Like it's it's all reinforced in the comic book panels. Yes. A little lazy way to tell the story. Little. But if you're not going to be singing, this is an opera. So like everything is sung, like nothing is just spoken. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you need just exposition to be clear... You got to do it somehow, I guess. Yes, and it is effective, and I do like the aesthetic of it. Yeah. It is a little lazy, but I like the aesthetic. But it explains, like we already said, organ failures have plummeted the country into chaos. Gene Co. becomes a thing, and they have these payment plans that nobody can keep up with except for the uber-rich. And for the uber-rich, surgery becomes a fashion statement. Yeah, and that's more than just... 
you know, getting plastic surgery. We're talking like replacing your eyes, you know, getting a a, a new lung. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this becomes recreational. Yes. But the eyes are specifically like they can play memories and stuff. Well, those are specifically blind mag's eyes. But they are selling them to. Yeah. Theoretically, this is the type of technology they have. Yeah. And from this, uh, a recreational drug has become a thing as well called Zydrate. So Zydrate is what they use to knock you out, to get you ready for surgery. And as a painkiller after the fact. And then it has become a recreational drug. And there's actual Zydrate, and then there is the ripoff version, which people can get from... Grave robbers. De- yeah, dead people. Yeah, so, and that that's the implication is that that's also where Geneco gets it. Oh. Like, it's all the same thing. It's just there's the official Zydrate, which is the marketable one, you know, the fashionable one, and then there's the street drug, but effectively there's no difference. So basically it's cocaine versus... Crack? Yeah. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And they explain about how repo men, you know, go and take organs back, and it does. they don't care if you die. Yeah. I really don't like the choir part of this. <laughs> Repo man, I don't I don't enjoy yeah. that. <laughs> like I said I wasn't big on the background singers too much in this movie. That's what you meant. Okay, yeah. yeah, I agree. I don't mean like the part of the song, the chorus. I mean like the chorus that's kind of like... The choir. Yeah, goes throughout the story and like comments on it a little bit in the background. Mm-hmm. Whereas the grave robber is more like the puck of the story, sort of like talking directly to the audience almost, even though he is a character in the story. Mm-hmm. I'm talking like the ones that aren't technically like really characters present in the story but you know kind of communicate to the audience throughout mm-hmm. that's the sort of chorus that i mean yes yes i did not like it either we find out about blind mag she's like this famous opera singer and she's giving her farewell she's leaving the opera yes this is all going to be where the movie leads up to and its climax is that performance we meet the head of Gene Co., played by... That's Roddy Largo, played by Paul Sorvino. Also known as Romeo's father from Romeo and Juliet. Yes. Is he Romeo's dad? No, he's Juliet's father. Whoops. Is he? Yeah, he's Mr. He's Capulet. Capulet. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. he's the one that hosts the party, who yells at Tybalt. But also... Go to! Yeah. Go to! <laughs> but also Polly and Goodfellas and uh, Valentine and the Rocketeer. You know him. He's disgusted by his three children. One of them it has a major temper and just kills people. That's Luigi Largo, played by Bill Mosley, who is, I guess, prolific, I guess you could say, in modern horror. He's in a lot of things, but it's mainly like... Do we know him? Rob Zombie-type movies and oh. like that kind of horror, you know what I mean? I can see that from this performance. Yes, we have seen him. He was a minor character in the Halloween remake... Um, yeah, he, you know, he's been in those sorts of movies. Uh, he's in both of Rob Zombie's, you know, House of a Thousand Corpses and The Devil's Rejects. 
plays the character called Otis, but we haven't covered those on the show yet. So he's also in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequel, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 from 1986. He plays Chop Top. So he's like one of the family members in the sequel. I totally can see that from this performance. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's definitely his niche. I don't understand the other son. Like, I don't get the face thing. I know it's supposed to be creepy. I understand that. But why is his face ravaged underneath? Just like, I don't quite get the Paris Hilton thing that happens at the end. Yeah, so Paris Hilton, that's the weird thing, is she has like a last-minute plastic surgery at one point, and so she's wearing just this someone else's face or her repaired face, and it starts peeling off. Um First of all, I think it's just supposed to be disgusting, right? I mean, you mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that. that's a I lot just... of the inspiration behind it. But why is hers like a real face except for the fact that it's falling off in his yeah. this weird sort of mask? Yeah. Who knows? And apparently the ladies love him. Well, I'm sure he pays them to this love is, him. This is Pavi. This is Ogre from Skinny Puppy. When I mentioned that a uh, member of Skinny Puppy was in this movie, this is the one I'm talking about. You'll see this everywhere you know probably most famously recently in uh with the joker he has a fake face put on he tries to do it to harley quinn as well in the comics but also kelsey mentioned texas chainsaw massacre but that's more like a like an actual just like oh you're wearing a mask and it's and it's his personalities versus like tearing off your face and then like attaching a different face to it mm-hmm. like this that's really more what i'm talking about i just i don't like i said i assume it's just for creepy factor yep. and grossness because it just doesn't quite make sense why is luigi a new york italian but pavi is like actually italian why is that the case <laughs> Yeah, I gotta say, the kids are the worst part. I And like I said, I've seen opera. Like, I get that they are supposed to be the comical relief. And that's why they're wearing such ridiculous costumes. Because if they were in an opera, they would be wearing outlandish costumes. I get all that. But I just don't think it works here. It's not funny. The music slows down for them and i don't know if that's because they're just not talented singers Mm -hmm. but it slows down so much that it and i get it's supposed to be accentuating their comic effect but it just doesn't work for me i it's weird and it's awkward and it slows down the story and they aren't very talented singers and that's not to say that they aren't a good performer i like i like i said i understand what they're trying to go for I just didn't get it. I didn't like it. So get this. In the original version of the story, the Necro Merchant's Debt, which is what it was originally called, Luigi and Pavi are still brothers, but Roddy, the father in this one, the patriarch, is their younger brother. And Amber is Luigi's daughter. So like the the family dynamic is different in the original. I have no idea why they would ever do that. But yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's disgusted with them all because the first brother, he has this bad temper situation. The other brother, why doesn't he like him? Because he's just sleazy and lazy. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, and lazy, and he wears other people's faces on his face. <laughs> and then, and then Amber, there's Amber, who's a drug addict. Yes, and a surgery addict. Yeah. But I mean, the thing is, is that everyone in the family is a surgery addict. There's a little bit of like, you know... 
sexism going on here in that she's the one that's called the addict. And yes, she is a drug addict, but she's also called the surgery addict. And like you see Luigi with his shirt off and he's got cuts all over him. And Pavi's fucking wearing somebody else's face on his face. Yes. And yes, they're disgusting, but they're not like called by the epithet addict. Yes. Like she is. Agreed. Mm-hmm. It is sexist. Mm-hmm. So they're all in his office, and I do absolutely love his two uh, bodyguards, which are women. Oh, yeah, the ladies. They're cool. great. <laughs> they're so great. They wear these really sexy outfits. They don't talk. They carry around guns. Like, imagine the band from the Addicted to Love music video, but they carry guns instead of guitars. <laughs> <laughs> and this doctor walks in, and he has to tell him that the guy's gonna die and so this chick just takes a gun out and just shoots him yeah uh-huh the guy does the father he doesn't even need to give a command or yeah, anything yeah he just yeah. slams the uh-huh. death sentence on the table and she just shoots the guy mm-hmm. it's great it's really funny and well done and then he has this song about you know i'll keep those vultures guessing who am i going to leave gene co to because all his kids want it yeah they all want the money they want the power they all feel entitled mm-hmm. and he's like god i hate my children <laughs> yes he hates his kids so he's wondering who should i leave my legacy to can you tell me do we ever hear in the story who their mother is no Like, they don't even go like, oh, yeah, I couldn't get this woman, so I married some other lady and had my three kids. We don't even get that. No. Like, no mention of her whatsoever. Whoever the mother was, we have no idea. Yeah. uh Then we get to meet Shiloh, our protagonist. Uh, Alexa Penavega. And I think she's a fine actress. Yeah. I can't stand her singing. I can't stand the way that they have her singing over and over and over again. I do not enjoy her songs. Throughout the entire movie. Her songs are the worst ones. They I agree. are the worst ones. Mm-hmm. And I do, I don't think it's her performance. I just think it's her singing. I don't I don't like it. Alternately, Paul Sorvino's songs, I'm hot and cold on. Whenever they get him singing like an actual opera singer, love him. Oh yeah. Love them. He is so good at that. Yes. But when they just have him sort of talking, I feel like he's almost stumbling over the melodies sometimes. And so like I'm hot and cold on his Anthony Stewart Head, the Repo Man. Oh, he's great. He's great. Yeah. I'm only living out a lie. Yes. I am only living out a lie. He's a little cliche, but yes, (sighs) he's a great singer. Yes. I like the guy that is from Romeo and Juliet. Um, Paul Sorvino. Yeah. Yeah. But this girl, every time she sings, it's just like, no, 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 no. It's 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 too whiny like the entire time. She's just whine whine whine. Infected uh-huh. by your genetics. I'm infected by your genetics. God, 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 no! Do you know who this is? Who? This is the girl from Spy Kids. I can see that. Mm-hmm. I can see that. That movie is great. <laughs> And it, underappreciated. It goes, it goes places in the sequels. And the boy from Spy Kids, he married Megan Trainer, and he was just in the news because they have toilets sitting next to each other so they can pee together. Good for them. <laughs> that movie is great. I just saw the TV show last night. Not so great. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. That was on. <laughs> My friend's kids were watching it. Ooh. <laughs> anyway, she has a book on insects. 
That's why she likes to go outside, even though she's not supposed to, because she's supposed to be sick. I feel like there's some sort of implied thing here with this insect that she finds that glows and the glowing nature of the Zydrate. Like, does that have something to do with why decomposing bodies generate this? Or are they attracted to that? Or are they the cause of it? The movie does not explore it, but there's a little bit of just like, bink, think about this. <laughs> Let's talk about the illness. Yes. I am still confused as hell. Absolutely. <laughs> I have it written down here, especially with some things that, that they say later. We just have to accept as given right now at the beginning of the movie that she's, for lack of a more subtle term, she's basically a, a bubble boy. Uh, she's not supposed to go outside. She lives life in her room and more specifically behind plastic in her bed. And she doesn't have any hair, so she has to wear a wig. Yeah. But she sneaks out because she visits her mom's gravesite and likes to study the bugs around there. Yes. And because she's so interested in insects, she ends up going outside, which again, she's not supposed to. Outside of the tomb. Oh, yeah. we still, okay, let's talk about the illness. The idea is that she is supposed to be super sick from this disease. That she got from her mom, supposedly? Yes. What caused her mom to die while she was pregnant Anthony Stewart Head had to, Nathan is his name, had to cut her out, emergency C-section style, and then, you know, has kept her locked up her entire life. Right. And we are told, from his perspective, like, he doesn't ever want her to leave because she's all he has left. He loves her. Mm -hmm. It's He's all overbearing. Yeah. And so he admits that he doesn't want her to leave. But... We're not told until the end of the film Yes, okay. that she doesn't have the disease. So there's a couple things going on here, and that is that we are given the impression until the very end of the movie, even when we see Nathan in private, that he has full faith that he has accurately diagnosed his daughter and that she is actually in danger and she needs to take these injections all the time. There's never an indication that this is a lie. Never, even when he's alone. And then at the end of the movie, one of his lyrics is about how he's been poisoning her. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. So are we supposed to think that she's now a victim of Munchausen by proxy? Mm -hmm. um, or is his guilt just coming through? And yes, now that's exactly. what he feels. Exactly. Is this a metaphor or is uh -huh. this literal? There I is, can't There's tell. also no clear indication at the end because Roddy continually promises to cure her. But we are never explicitly told whether or not a cure is necessary. If she's even sick at all, because the what we find out pretty early on, is that Roddy is the one that poisoned Nathan's wife and Shiloh's mom because he was jealous because she used to be his girlfriend before Nathan took her away. It took her away. She just, she picked Nathan for herself. Yes. And so he killed her. So her disease that she died from was never real. What Roddy told Nathan with his doctors is that Nathan, in trying to like help her, you killed her accidentally. No, 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 no. She really was sick. Yeah, and he killed her in quotes, but really it was Roddy that killed her. Right, but she was sick. Yes, yeah. Roddy did not make her sick from or the did beginning. did he? Because the movie's not clear about that either. Just that we know that he killed her. We don't know that he didn't make her sick, especially if apparently Shiloh's not sick. I don't know. It's really, really unclear. I Okay, from what I gathered, it you know, it was just the natural thing, like everybody's organs were failing. So yeah. she was getting sick and was dying. And so he was trying to cure her. 
And then Roddy poisoned the cure, yes. which is what caused her to die. And then he saved the daughter. That is what we explicitly hear. Yes. That's what I thought was true. And mm -hmm. then, then the question is, has he been poisoning her literally by and making her sick so that she stayed with him? Or is it a metaphor that he has been... Keeping her... Keeping locked her up locked and up, repressed and... Even though she doesn't really need to be, but she is still sick. Right, yeah. It's I, confusing. It's very, very confusing, especially when it comes down to the moral character of one of your primary characters that by the end of the movie, they really want you to feel a sort of twisted sympathy for. Well, I mean, Shiloh isn't upset about it at all. No. So, yeah, that's another thing that's like, wait a minute. Didn't he just admit in this song that he has been poisoning you on purpose? Yeah. Or did he not? Yeah. It's very, very unclear. And because they say things explicitly and then people react wildly differently than you would expect them to. Yeah. And so it's, so wait, was that a metaphor? I don't know. And that really bothers me because it makes I it, agree. it makes it unclear about how you should feel about these characters. Yes. It sort of reinforces the idea that there's not a lot of substance to this movie. It's more spectacle. Yes. It's aesthetics. Yes. And music. And you know what? That's fine. But it's a bummer. <laughs> but so, okay. She gets led outside. This is where she meets the grave robber. Now, the grave robber is a weird character. I guess a puck is a good way to describe him. Because he helps Shiloh a lot. Uh -huh. But he also gets her into trouble a lot. Yeah, and he kind of just, he, he's like a little troublemaker. He's a trickster. Like, he's a tramp. You know what I mean? Like, he's... He's a Loki, I guess. Yeah, uh-huh. And it's so no wonder that the guy that created this decided that's the role I want to play. Because it's like the best role in the movie. Next yes. to Nathan, I would say. Yes. And he does this thing in the song where they're like immediately in trouble because grave robbers are murdered on sight. And there are soldiers in this area, in this graveyard, where he's extracting this street Zydrate stuff. And then he just screams out loud and gets them caught. And it's my job to steal and rob. I think that's just, you know, a metaphor for them getting caught. I don't think he's literally... Like shouting, "Hey guys, we're over here!" Well, like that's he feels clear. Yeah, I agree, but I, that's the conclusion I came to. You know, he just shouts out a particular line of the song, and then everyone's in trouble. And they're like, "Oh shit, we got to get out of here!" Why would he do that? In actuality, He's I think a trickster. It's, he enjoys the he enjoys the almost getting yeah, caught. Yeah, maybe, but and he knows he's not going. Well, to Well, see, caught. that's the thing. I think he has some sort of storyteller knowledge some sort of like godlike knowledge of what's going to happen. And so he feels confident in just doing whatever damn the consequences, because I know the consequences aren't going to be that bad. Everything's going to turn out. Okay. So he is a little bit of like, you know, God or demigod like mm -hmm. in that way. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the police do catch her and she's almost in trouble, but the repo man shows up and he's like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Because well, because Roddy says, let them live. And then, Nathan shows up and pushes them away. They're both watching the scenario and they're both like, don't you fucking hurt them. <laughs> really, in particular, it's Shiloh, but the grave robber kind of gets wrapped up in it. 
No, the grave robber oh, is gone. Oh, he's already gone. gone. He yes, you're right. You're right. Sorry. So it's a little bit that he knows that she won't get in trouble. Yeah. And he knows he'll escape. Yeah. The repo man shows up, and of course, that's her father. And he takes her back, and he's just like, what the fuck? You could have died. You but scared the shit out of me. An important distinction here. We know that that's her father. She does not. Correct. There is a break between when the repo man shows up and gets these soldiers away from her and when she's back up in her room and her father's taking care of her. Yeah. She is not aware that her father is a repo man. As far as she's concerned, he's a doctor. She doesn't even know what repo men are. Really? You're right. Yeah. She's been isolated from that. And it's the grave robber who kind of exposes her to that content later on in the story. Yes. He is the one who will let her know all about the outside world. And what's going on with Blind Mag, who she idolizes. wants to be in. And it's just like, look at the world around you. The world fucking sucks. Yeah. Why do you want to go out there? (laughs) Stay inside, man. (laughs) But it's weird because she's like... I could smell the dead dad, like something weird is going on. He's just like, shut up. Like, I don't want to talk about it. And I think, like, I guess it's the implication is that she's starting to understand about the outside world and he doesn't want her to. But and that there are larger consequences of what they're doing with human life here, I think. Yeah, that's a good point. Yes. Something is rotten and it's only going to get worse until something eventually. Is rotten in Denmark. Yeah. But until eventually the corpse explodes and now you got disease everywhere that's sort of like a metaphor for what's happened to the world but yeah so roddy is like come out and see me i have your cure um to I, her like wristwatch communicator thing i knew your mother and that's when we find out about that whole past in comic book form yeah and he sings i'll take it to my death and no one will ever know and no one ever does know yeah no one ever finds out right kind of fucked but so she does she well she's curious but they do force her to go pretty much yeah they they, she goes to the grave site and yeah they trap her and they drop some gas and then they take her yeah and she's like i can't be outside and i do like later that she admits that i used that to shelter myself Uh you know i like that she admits that it's kind of the same thing with rapunzel right like she can hate her mom as much as she wants to for supposedly keeping her locked up, but she also could have left at any time. Right. A little bit of good old-fashioned victim blaming, but, you know, personal responsibility is a thing. So. Right. Yeah. And I think both Two sides of the same that I'm coin. talking about, totally. like, no, I you agree. know, they admit, like, I should have done this a long time ago. Right, exactly. There is a difference between blaming the victim for what happened to them and a, a person admitting to their personal responsibility. Two yes. different things. Mm-hmm. But so he explains that he has found a cure for all blood diseases. Again, is this a lie? We don't know. Never expounded upon. Probably he's a big old liar. Yeah, he is a big liar. (laughs) One confusing thing about the Repo Man, because remember, I really like that guy. I think that he's a good actor. I think Mm -hmm. he's a good singer. Whenever he's on camera, the movie comes to life. Absolutely, it does, yeah. But it's odd because his character supposedly hates being a repo man, hates himself but for he what he does. But he gets a visceral thrill out yeah, of it. Yeah, he enjoys yes. it. Uh-huh. It allows his inner demons to come out, and it's not something that he has to keep repressed, sort of like he does when dealing with his daughter and being a father. So he gets to live out those sort of things that he normally keeps repressed, and I think he hates that about himself. So it's pleasurable. It's like an addict. It's pleasurable in the moment – 
but every other time it's shameful. So kind of like Dexter, I guess. But Dexter embraces it more. Yeah. Keeping in mind that we never watched past the fourth season of Dexter. <laughs> we stopped at the exact right point you're supposed to stop watching that show. Before he starts dating his sister, before all that madness, before he becomes a lumberjack. We finally get to meet Blind Mag, Sarah, Sarah Brightman. Brightman. Yep. Again, the original Christine Daae from Phantom of the Opera, the one that he wrote the songs for because she specifically could hit those notes. Yes. That's why some women have to have it on recording when they do it, because uh-huh. they can't hit those they notes. They can't hit and it reliably, okay. at least. Yes, that totally. okay. I mean, the whole point of the story of Phantom of the Opera, at least that part of the story, is that it is remarkable that she can sing like that. Mm-hmm. And so you're, it's going to be tough to find somebody who can do that. Yes, exactly. That's the whole point. At least every single night. So if they have to record them ahead of time and then play it, that's fine. Now... Let's talk about the whole Blind Mag thing, because that's also a little confusing for me. Yeah. So Blind Mag, who is she to everyone in the story, like the the major players? So she was best friends with Marnie when Marnie was with Roddy. So Marnie is Shiloh's mom. Yes. Now, I understand that Roddy is just supposed to have always been, well, rotten, yeah. right? I get that, and I get that when... Even when Mag was best friends with Marty, he might still fuck her over in the contract. Mm -hmm. I believe all that. Why keep her on after Marnie did what she did? Does Mag know what he did to Marnie? Why would Mag quit when she knows that what he's going to do to her? Right. Why would he do what he does to her after she's been his person for so long? Wouldn't that be bad press? I'm so confused about so many elements yeah yeah very much so it's just i mean it's a thing about this movie again style over substance they kind of just want things to happen and there's no real deep thought as to what the implications are of those things that's what this movie is (laughs) i just you just gotta throw up your hands and be like okay if you don't like it that's fine but that's not what this movie is for so but basically so because mag was best friends with marnie who was dating roddy he said, hey, let me give you eyes. I can make you be able to see. Uh-huh. And he gets her to be his, basically the face of his company. Yes. And she's a she, spokesperson for Gene Co. And she signs the contract. Now, the contract states that if she ever quits, they get the eyes back. And they can repossess the eyes, which, if they do it the way they've been repossessing all these other organs, will kill her. Which she has to know. So she's quitting knowing this. Yeah. And... She's quitting and he knows she's quitting and Hoping he knows that he'll that be he's a good enough this. person that he won't actually repossess the eyes. Why would he when she's the face of his company? I get that right. she's no longer going to be the face, but what, she's just not going to exist anymore in the press? Well, the Wouldn't hope that is be maybe press? that they kill her. No, I agree. It's very muddy. It's it all is very muddy. muddy. But she was supposed to be, Marnie wanted her to be Shiloh's godmother. And Nathan has kept. Shiloh separated both physically and through knowledge of her mom and their previous life, their association with Roddy, and that includes Blind Mag. Yes. So Shiloh has no idea that this woman she idolizes is actually her godmother, and Blind Mag has no idea that Shiloh's even alive. Yes. Because as far as everyone else knows, aside from Nathan and Roddy, she died when her mom died. Mm-hmm. 
and was never actually successfully born. Yeah. Now, there's a weird moment when we first meet Blind Mag where she tells Luigi to stop beating a person up and he does. Why would he listen to her? Because right after Paris comes in and just insults the shit out of her. It's not entirely impossible to sort of like cow these people, you know, by showing that, ugh, what, ugh, you know, like to sort of maybe shame them a little bit. The reason why Paris Hilton, Amber, is mean to Blind Mag is because she wants to be the spokesperson. Right. She wants to take her place and she wants Mag to just fucking die already. And then deep inside, she knows she is nowhere near as good as Blind Mag. Mm -hmm. And that just makes her angry at Mag. Mm-hmm. No, I get all that, but I don't understand why Luigi would stop beating somebody up because she said so when we immediately see that Paris Hilton has zero respect for her. Why the imbalance? There? Well, I would say because there's the very specific problem that Paris has with her. And I think all three of them have known them, have known, have known her their entire, their entire lives. lives. She is kind of a mother figure to them. A little bit. Yes. Mm -hmm. I suppose that's true. Also, Mag could never break her contract. She could never work for anybody else, obviously. Yeah. It is a joy to hear Sarah Brightman sing, mm -hmm. even if I don't think she's the best actress in the world. Yeah, I really like her in this movie. I her, really, really do. Her voice is just incredible, and I'm such an enormous Phantom of the Opera fan that it it is... Because I never got to see her do it live, mm -hmm. unfortunately. I have seen the recorded version of her. We went and saw that in the theater, and that yeah. was very, very cool. It was very cool. But I never got to see it live. Mm -hmm. So this is great to be able to hear her so often. Mm -hmm. It was one of those things where when we first saw this movie uh, over a decade ago, I remember my thought being like, what the fuck is Sarah Brightman doing in this movie? <laughs> now, the weird thing about Amber, like we said... She wants to be the spokesperson of the company, but she's totally unreliable. When she has these moments where she's supposed to be the star, she's off getting high. And yeah, it's just and like she doesn't even show up when she should be. Yeah, well, it's so exactly why she's not, not going, going to, be to be the spokesperson. But that just makes her even angrier. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. No, she's her own downfall. She's the reason why she's never going to get what she wants. And she refuses to accept that. She sings when she's talking. And that's Paris Hilton, right? I'm but it's pretty not sure all of her. I don't think she's dubbed over by somebody else. Even the end when she does like the operatic version? When she's on stage before she falls off or whatever? That's her. Oh, Sarah Brightman? No, I'm talking about Paris Hilton. Before she falls off. Oh, when she's doing that? Because it does sound like her when she's talk singing, but it doesn't when she's doing the opera stuff. And I want to remind everyone that I am a Paris Hilton fan. I think she's great and all that, but I don't think she's at her... I don't think she's at her top in this movie, basically. And I, I think it is because of the way that they were... They were directed because they were going for this very particular, like I said opera comic relief and I, I unfortunately i just don't think paris hit it hit the yeah, mark i don't see any indication that she didn't sing i mean she has her own album fuck yes she does <laughs> maybe like, the stars are blind chris okay yes maybe but <laughs> and i remember she yeah she does have that song 
There's like a song where the music video, she's like on a beach or in a hammock or something. Is that the one? Maybe the stars are blind. It's not a terrible song. No, it's not. She needs to be heavily produced, and she has this, like, you know, sort of, like, eh, screaming sound to in her this in this movie. movie, because that's yeah. how she was directed to Exactly. Be. Grave robber, grave robber, sometimes I wonder why I even bother, grave robber, grave robber. Sometimes I wonder why I need you at all. So I don't think she sounds the best, but I don't think she was overdubbed with any voice other than her own. Interesting. Or at least I don't see any indication of that. Interesting. She has sort of the opposite of her dad, where her dad has the sexy lady guards. She has the sexy man guards wearing practically nothing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. But so it's through Amber Sweet and through the grave robber that Shiloh learns all about Zydrate. This is a fun song, like a battery, like a battery. Oh, yeah, that is a really fun song. um, Against her anatomy. It's a fun song. And Amber Sweet is addicted to the knife. Addicted to the knife? Addicted to the knife. And addicted to the knife, she needs a little help with the agony. Agony. And a little help comes in a little glass vial and a gun pressed against her anatomy. And when the gun goes off, Miss Sweet is ready for surgery. Surgery. I would say that's probably the best song in the movie. I know we mentioned the everybody, everybody. That's a small sort of like moment, but it's not like a full song that's a whole lot of fun. This is a full song beginning to end, and it explains a lot while still being very entertaining. Yes. I like it a lot. It is it is well done. Mm-hmm. But again, it is the Grave Robber song. Yes. You know, big surprise. <laughs> yeah. that he gets like one of the best songs in the movie. <laughs> yeah. So he is Amber's supplier. And he is also at the same time showing Shiloh that, hey, this is what it's like. This is what all this shit does. And oh, did you hear? Blind Mag is thinking about quitting and they're probably going to take her eyes Here's the report. Here's the tabloid article about that or whatever. Yes. He intentionally gets Amber mad, blames it on Shiloh, but this is purely so that Shiloh will learn about Blind Mag's predicament. But again, yeah. it is the trickster in him that blames it on Shiloh to get her in trouble. Oh, yeah, totally. But he then, at and then the he end, saves her later. Saves her. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. He's, ju- he's a puck. Yes. <laughs> Meanwhile, because Blind Mag is quitting. And because Roddy is evil, he tells our main guy, hey, you got to be the one to take away her eyes. And he's just like, fuck no, I'm not doing this. Yeah, I'm not going to hurt my wife's best friend. Yes, and they make him take somebody's organs out and he's like, I remember singing about his wife. And it 
it's not the best song, but he does a really good he job really with good it. Job. He's so good. It doesn't really matter what he mm-hmm. is singing or doing. He's just so good at it. There is this sort of I remember motif that they'll come back to later on at the end of the movie at the performance on stage. But then ultimately at the end of the song, he still is like, no, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, he refuses to. And it's interesting because he knows what this guy is capable of. Yeah. But still, he can't do it. He has it's to put just his like, foot down. She was my wife's best friend. She is my daughter's godmother, even though I've kept them apart their entire uh-huh. lives. I won't do it. Yeah. And while this is happening, Blind Mag secretly goes to see Shiloh. Yeah. And Shiloh is afraid. And again, she does use her illness to be like, I can't go out. I can't talk uh-huh. to you. Uh, and Blind Mag is forced to show her memories of her mother Marnie. to get the tr- to gain the trust of Shiloh using her eyes as a projector. Yeah, and this is, is another concept. good song because it's fucking Sarah Brightman. Yeah, so. Sarah Brightman and Marnie are sort of like duetting together. Yes, and Marnie's in a, a memory, so it's like a it's very much like a Nat King Cole, Natalie Cole kind of moment, <laughs> you know, where she does a duet with her father after he had passed away, mm-hmm. like that sort of thing. Let your Integrity, honesty, it's too late for me. Don't look back till you're free to chase the morning. I think Mag ends up just leaving. Oh, well, no. because Nathan because shows up. Nathan shows up and forces her to leave. But this pisses Shiloh off. She's like, this is my godmother. You have to save her. She's in trouble. And Nathan tries to p- pretend like he doesn't know what she's talking yeah, about. Yeah, what are you talking about? And he changes the subject. And this is when we get the stupid 17 song. Oh, my God. It's so bad. <laughs> it's very bad. It's so like, bad. I guess I'm just old, but like, oh my God, this whole, I'm 17, you can't tell me what to do. Oh God, uh, I yeah. don't care, I don't it's, care. It, so it just whiny. comes across as petulant. And, yes. Yeah. And, I, and I wrote down Jet is wasted in this Wasted. Song. She just plays in the corner and you barely see her. It's just like. It's very obvious that she is just used as sort of like a legitimizer shorthand. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah, so we got Joan Jett, so this song is actually good. <laughs> Remember when Joan Jett sang that song about I don't give a damn about my bad reputation? <laughs> you know, that that's petulant, so this is also good. Like, no, 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 no. Not good. I wrote down 17 is a pretty dumb moment. All of a sudden, we're in an Avril Lavigne music video circa 2000, and... I hate uh. you. <laughs> why do you have to bring Avril Lavigne into this? You know why you think that? Because she kind of looks like her. That's why you think Well, they so. go all in on that look of that, like, oh, look at her. She's wearing, you know, a tie. <laughs> Avril Lavigne had a very pretty voice. Oh, I'm not saying she's not talented. 
Uh, I I'd like Avril Lavigne as a person, I think. <laughs> as much as I know about her, she might be terrible in real life. I don't know. That's not I don't have a problem with Avril Lavigne as a person. But there was this aesthetic that was just so manufactured and lacked authenticity. And that's the way I feel here with this song. Well, after this debacle of a song, <sighs> um, we find out that, of course, Roddy is planning to leave his company to the more deserving Shiloh. But again, this really doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, he he says... No, it's half a way to screw over his kids. Yeah. And it, half to show, I really did love Marnie. Yeah, and he's just like, you should have been my daughter. And it's just like, if, he, if she'd been your daughter, she would have become Amber Sweet. You know, it's right. just like... No, this doesn't make a lot of sense, but fine. And I did write down here, because it becomes a bigger issue at the end, why in the fuck would Shiloh be interested at all in owning Jean Co? Why is this shown as like a victory for her? She'd be rich. Yeah, but I mean, does she and, shut the system down? Well, does and she, she can make it a better system. But there's no implication that she's going to do that. Well, because she doesn't end up taking the company at the end. Doesn't she? No. Is it the kids it's that the take kids it? It's the kids that get it at the end. Oh, because he never the signs the paper, does that's, he? That's what I, yeah, I was like, he I guess he never signed he signs it. it. Yeah. But we did see him sign it. That's the weird part. He did claims, he? Shit. What? He signs it on screen and then later he claims he won't sign it until she will do something for him. I don't remember what it is, but it's evil. But she, of course, doesn't do it. And then she gets in the car at the end and drives off, but the kids at the end are still super rich. So I don't know. It's confusing. I don't know what happens. Doesn't matter. Does anybody actually care? <laughs> no. Okay, so what's happening now? This is when we get everybody, everybody. Yes, yeah, so when the show is starting at the opera. Everybody, everybody. Oh, yeah. And it's so fun. And it's weird every time. Like, this is probably the third time I've seen this movie. The second and third times, I'm like, oh, here comes the song. <laughs> and I'm always a little bit disappointed that it's not more It's not of longer. It. It's not longer. It's not more rhythmic. It. I don't get a lot of you, that repeating everybody, everybody. It repeats like twice. And but it's just so much fun. It is. It and is. The, the dancers are great. Mm -hmm. They sell this song absolutely because there is not an inch of them that feels ironic there's not an uh -huh. inch of them that feels like they're laughing at this no it feels like this is they live for this it's bacchanalia kind of like you know it's just everyone just legitimately wants to fucking get high and like that's what this is going to be and there's an old lady dj and, <laughs> yes. and everyone is testifying, testifying. Yeah, testify. And, and like I said, the, the nurse dancers that you might expect to be, think this is lame and not act it, they are, yes, testify. Like it's it's like a uh -huh. like a religious moment. It's so Oh, very good. much so, yeah. We didn't really talk about the gen turns. They get their own song at one point. They're just sexy nurses that kind of follow the Genko employees around and like – that are in love with Pavi and shit. Yeah, they're a little bit of like the chorus, right? Yeah. Like, so they, but they're great they get here. to be the chorus. Yeah, but they are good here. You're right. The choreographer for this was very on point. 
Trey Armstrong was the choreographer. She done anything else famous? Uh, she worked on the 2016 Suicide Squad. I um, liked it. <laughs> she was oh, one of the. Oh, but she did the choreography. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> she, was, she was one of the gen turns in this movie. But yeah, then of course, Amber Sweet. Now, do I believe that Amber Sweet, who has all this money, she got a hack job would at get one point? A hack yeah. job. And I get that her dad wouldn't pay for the surgery at first, but then he does. She makes him feel guilty, so he does. Well, and there's that's a how couple gets, of things. That's it, how she gets the beautiful face yeah. at the end, which, by the way, yes, I do think Paris Hilton is beautiful. Sure. But why wouldn't it be perfect? So, well, the reason, a couple of reasons, it's this father-daughter dynamic. When the daughter is doing something that the father doesn't want to support, she goes out, does it on her own and gets a bad hack job, somebody fucks up, and he's like, well, you got to deal with your consequences, right? Like, this was bound to happen. Plus, it's not even that big a deal. And she's devastated. And he's used to her overreacting and being devastated over every little thing until finally he sees what happened to her face. There's this interesting moment where he apparently was supposed to cough up blood, but he didn't want to do it. Paul Servino, so they didn't have him do it. It's like, okay, fine. But he, he coughs into his handkerchief. And it's this combination of his disease and his disgust over what her face looks now. And then he's like, oh, no, I, I'll fix it. And it's this – I think it's very compelling because it's both compassionate and disgustingly materialistic. Yes. You know? It's, so it's weird, like, combination of traits that Roddy has, you know, where he's like, oh, my God, I didn't realize it was so bad. I'm so sorry. I doubted you sort of thing. I will take care of it, whatever you need. Get it done. We'll have the best people take care of you. But also, it's because he's so disgusted by sh the fact that she doesn't look perfect. Yeah. So it's weird. It's I it's thought it was even, very realistic. E it felt even the most materialistic people can still have that those sort of, like, paternal instincts. Yes. Yeah. Felt very real to me. Mm -hmm. But... Yeah, and then I love I love that she legitimately is upset by what happened and is ashamed of what she looks like. But as soon as he is like, oh, I'll take care of it. She's like, oh, daddy, thank you so much. Well, she just runs away and she's yeah. just like, fine, I'm so happy. But it's like, there's the shame yeah, uh -huh. doesn't last beyond... Getting what she wants. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And so she gets her new face and while she's singing on stage... It keeps flipping down. It starts to peel off because it was a rush job. The face is beautiful, but it's not healed yet or anything. And so it starts to peel off of her face until eventually it comes off completely. And everyone's disgusted by her. Yeah. An interesting little twist on this is that in the end, they reveal that she auctioned off her face that she lost on stage for charity, I want to say. And then that it was her brother... Pavi that bought the face and now that's the face that he wears. And the other guy killed the other people that, oh, were, that were going to bid on bid it. Bid on it yeah, for so charity. That, so Luigi killed those men and Pavi ended up becoming the winner. Yeah, it's it was a weird sort of like, hey, this twisted family still loves each other sort of thing. <laughs> you know, Pavi thinks that his sister's beautiful and would love to wear her face. <laughs> you know, it's a weird sort of twisted thing. Yes. It is very Texas Chainsaw, so you can see why Luigi... They get they got chopped up to be in this. Yes. But then we get a gorgeous song by Sarah Brightman. Yes. She gets to sing her song and she comes in on these wires because she's like this death angel in a graveyard. Untold. 
Until she goes off script (laughs) and decides, fuck you, if you want to take my eyes because I'm quitting, fucking have them. And she plunges her her sharp nails into her eyes and pulls out her eyes and the audience gasps Mm -hmm. until Roddy, who sees this going on, he hits a mechanism backstage causing her to drop and be impaled on the spiked fence below her. Yes. And they claim, don't worry, folks, this is all part all of the show. All part of the show. Yes. And again, this is the part where, just like in Phantom of the Opera, just like Phantom of the Paradise, somebody dies on stage in front of everybody. Yep. And they just try to pretend like it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so what ends up happening in front of everybody on stage, Roddy tells... Shiloh, if you kill your father, I will give you Gene Co. Yeah. And this is when we have that whole revelation scene, which does not make any sense. Well, because there's double revelations. The revelation that Roddy (laughs) gives to Shiloh is that your father is responsible for your mother's death. But we know that that's not true. Right. So it's this weird. So it really, like, I cannot express enough how unclear it is what the truth is and how hard it is to walk away satisfied from this scenario. And I don't think that that's the movie's point. I don't think that they could claim that and I would believe them. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. But I wish I wish that they had just mm-hmm. made it a little bit t- tidier, a little bit cleaner. Yes. How people feel, though, and which is paramount in musicals, is really communicating emotion more than plot. That's very clear. I will give them that. She loves her father. Her father loves her. change that love. But he feels guilty about what he's done to her. Mm-hmm. Again, it's unclear whether he was intentionally harming her or he just feels guilty about how he raised her. Very unclear. But I mean that, you know, every parent feels guilty for the way they've raised right, their child. Right, which is so why I, I, I feel emotionally that everything's communicated well. Yes, and she loves her dad, even though she knows he's made mistakes. I mean, it's, you know, it's any parent-child relationship. So she refuses to kill her dad at the end of this conflict, despite what she has found out about him. Again, remember, she first finds out about Repo Men and is absolutely disgusted by them before she ever finds out that her dad is like the Repo Man. Mm-hmm. And she still loves him anyway. Is mm-hmm. the point to that. And so she refuses to kill him. Again, why would fucking inheriting Jinko mean dick to her? <laughs> and so Roddy, as he is dying, shoots Nathan on stage in front of everyone. And then he dies, you know, saying, fuck my children, you all suck and disgust me. And then he dies on stage. <laughs> Money covered beggars. I'm better than I am. Yo! Don't come near me, you're embarrassing. Disgusting. They're not men, you're creatures. I'm embarrassed by you. <laughs> Get away! I don't need you. Not either one of you. Go away! Uh, <coughs> I'll show your face to me. You're disgusting. You're not my daughter. You're nothing. 
And then so she sings probably her best song of the entire movie. I didn't know I love I you. I didn't know I'd love you so much. Mm-hmm. It is a very moving performance, I would say. In the midst of the chaos that is this movie, there's a really moving love song that she sings on, again, another surprise, moving, emotional song by the female lead. You know what I mean? But it makes sense it does. here. Yeah. <laughs> I understand her father is dying. She's singing about how much she loves him. And it is really beautiful. I would say, like, they sing to each other as he's dying. I didn't know I'd love you so much. Sometimes I'd stay up all night Wishing to God that I was the one who died And sometimes there's not enough time But I didn't know I loved you so much I didn't know I loved you so much I didn't know I loved you so much But I do I'm not even a father And it's like enough to move me to tears <laughs> Just the emotional component of it. It's beautiful. I'll, I really, really enjoy this part of it. And he dies, and she walks away from everything. Mm-hmm. But in Roddy's car. But she didn't take the over the company. I'm yeah, so confused. Uh-huh. But she's alone. <laughs> and I guess it goes and lives her life. Uh, and then we mentioned how the kids, since they were never officially disowned, he never signed everything over to Shiloh. They inherit the company, and I guess things are going well? I guess. I don't know. Relatively, I guess. Now, this was supposed to be the center chapter in a larger trilogy with a prequel and a sequel. According to Zadunik, if that's, again, I don't know how you pronounce his name, the grave robber guy. Number one, they never really got the support that they needed. It didn't make hardly anything. It's a huge bomb financially. He's like, well, you know, maybe we can hope for a lot, like a lot of other movies, that we become a big underground cult success. And many years later, there will be a desire to see more of this story um, and what that would be as a prequel and a sequel. But we just don't have that support. So it's, I mean, it's not going to happen. And on top of that, we don't really even own the rights to this anymore. So they kind of went on and started making other things. Mm. And so, I mean, it's probably never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, I guess is a bummer. I don't begrudge them their creation, and I, like I, I would like to is. see them do more, but yeah, okay. I like it as is. I don't, I, I mean, I, I want to see more open. of that grave robber. I would love to get his story in a prequel. I would be open to it, but I don't need it. It's a little obnoxious that, yes, the guy who, like, wrote the stuff and perform- he gets the best role, the most badass character. Like, yeah, that's a little obnoxious, but I mean, he's right. It is the best character. <laughs> He's pretty great. Next to Nathan, the Repo right. Man. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that is Repo, the genetic opera. Kelsey, do you have anything else to say about the movie? Just that I love the goth look to it. Uh-huh. It's a lot of fun, even though it is flawed. Oh, well, we didn't mention in the, like a battery, in that song, uh, there's a I don't know if it's – God, is it in that song or, or is it in a different one? He mentions the concept of the reason this all exists is it's a byproduct of Gene Co. For every market, a submarket grows. Mm-hmm. That's a great concept. You know, mm-hmm. and it's basically like, yeah, all this great Black stuff on the market. surface. Yes. Submarket. <laughs> every, you know, Sometimes everyone's successful. I wonder why I ever got in. 
<laughs> you should have been in this movie. Uh, while everyone who's at the top is getting richer off of all this stuff, it's creating submarkets that are corroding the foundation of the society. And I, I think that's a pretty great message to get out there because it's very true. But, you know, it, it is kind of at the heart of why this culture is like this in this movie. And so I figured it'd be weird if we didn't mention that for every market, a submarket grows. For every market, a submarket grows. So what do you think the movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? Sure, it's not great. Okay. What would you think it is? Like a 34? 40. Okay. Bombastic and intentionally gross, which is true. True. Repo the Genetic Opera has a unique style, but lacks the wit and substance to be involving. I disagree. Yeah? Why? I think it has wit and substance. I just don't think it does much with it. I don't think it's witty enough. It's not deep enough. It's not deep enough. But I don't think it wants to be. Yeah. I, I mean, it does that thing that operas do, level, and that's which, fine. but it does that thing that operas do, which I think is fine, where it does convey those emotions more than it does the literal plot, mm-hmm. you know, especially if you're watching an opera in a language you don't understand, like that's its job. And you just need to understand the emotional journey that's going on or like in a ballet, right? Where nobody says anything. I remember one of the first ballets I ever saw was Carman. It was a ballet of Carmen about, like, mechanics, and no problem communicating the story. I knew exactly what was going on, and nobody said word fucking one. You know what I mean? It's kind of like that, but now you have to do that with song, where you have lyrics, and I think they still do that. But if you were to just listen to the lyrics, it's confusing and muddied and incoherent at at some points. So you just need to let the movie sort of move you more than you do have to sort of analyze the specifics of the plot. That said, what it's moving you to is, like this says, the bombast, the gross out stuff. Like Mm -hmm. when they're market off, whatever that song was, where the kids were doing an inventory on body parts. What the fuck? Why why was that a thing? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it's... uh, I'm hot and cold on this movie. I don't know about you. There's a lot uh, that I like about it. And then there's a little that I don't like. I I appreciate that I don't think that it was trying to do much yeah. beyond the surface level. It wanted to be a goth opera. It wanted to be kind of silly. It also wanted to have moving music. And I think it accomplished all that. There are definitely just like what does that mean you know but um (laughs) the fuck do you mean by that (laughs) but i just i i think it's a lot of fun and i think that like you said the emotions are there and and at the very least the plot we get within the film maybe not so much the backstory Uh the plot we get within the film makes sense yeah and i will also say that despite the fact that I mean, we're going to get into what we're going to rate it in a second. Or I should say it has a Metacritic of 32. Despite the fact that I wouldn't necessarily say that this is a good movie, this is a movie that I've seen, like I said earlier, three times now, and I will see it again. I think that says something. Mm -hmm. So do you think that 40 is overrated or underrated? Underrated. Sure. What would you give it, though? I give it 77. I was going to go 74, I think. I think 70s is kind of where this 
lies. I think maybe your 77 is a little bit too close to 80 for my comfort. Uh, but I, I really like this movie, but just desperately, like I say, hot and cold on it. It's just, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And I would, like you said, I would rewatch it. I might fast forward through 17. Yeah. <laughs> That's, that is by far the worst song in the entire movie. It is. If it weren't for that. So really, that song could lose the movie points. But because it's only one that I'm like, eh, eh, I would fast forward through it. But the rest of the movie, I would absolutely rewatch. Oh, yeah. There are, there are 56 songs in this. Mm-hmm. If you include the ones that were cut out and put in the end credits. And the songs that I don't particularly like, like specifically the one that the brothers and the sisters sing. It's really short. Mark it up. Yeah. It yeah. goes really fast. So fuck it. Yeah. Who cares? 17 is really the only one that's like, eh. I know people are going to say, well, that's how teenagers behave. And yeah, things. it is. Yeah. But this is a character <laughs> that we're supposed to like, and she's just really annoying. Here. Yes. <laughs> yes. I don't care that she's authentic. I She's unlikable. <laughs> yes. Anyway, that is Repo the Genetic Opera, thus ending our musical horror week, which, Kelsey, thank you so much that we finally got to do this. I have been waiting virtually since we started this show to do this week. So Very glad that we did it then. Totally, totally awesome. I really hope you guys enjoyed it as well. What are we watching next week? Next week is a friend's pick, uh-huh. and then we are also having a guest on the show. So our guest is friends with the friend who picked <laughs> the, the movies, and he asked that Jesse get on the show with us again. And uh, So this is Jesse D, not Jesse J. Yes, this is Jesse D, the, the one that's been on twice now. Well, they've both been on. So they've both been on twice. So this is the Jesse that we did grave encounters with. And yes. The Houses October Built? The Houses October Built. Yeah. Yeah. So what did our friend David pick? So David, the original thing was that he wanted us to watch Host, which I've heard from people is good. Yes, it's the, the Zoom horror movie. The Zoom which horror I've heard, movie. Which I've heard is really good. It's, and we really It's not like, that long. We really <laughs> like Unfriended, even though we haven't done it for the show oh, yet. Oh, God. Every single time I do a video conference with Bob, who's also been on this show, <sighs> we need to have back sometime soon. Yes. Um... I get him to do the, what's happening? Like into the <laughs> camera thing from that movie. Just love it so much because it's so ridiculous. But anyway, host. Yeah, so host. So David really wanted us to do host. And then when I asked him what other movie he wanted us to do with it, he was like, can you do Lake Placid? And I said, I don't understand the connection but sure, David, we will do that for you. <laughs> I think we would do like Lake Placid with, uh, what's the new alligator one that came out recently that oh, people seem to like? Oh, my was pretty yeah, good. Yeah, uh-huh. I don't remember. There are plenty called. of those sort of like swamp horror movies. I um, think Lake, pa- Lake Placid is about an alligator? Yeah. Oh, I guess that makes sense. It's a lake. You know, Betty White's in the movie. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So I'm excited about that. But it's Bill Pullman, Bridget Fonda. Okay. One of those 90s epic horror movies that they tried to make mainstream. And as a result, I'm sure it's going to be fun. But I can't imagine it's going to be terribly great. <laughs> <laughs> I never saw it back when it came out. 
Yeah. I guess I've never seen it either. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so we're going to be watching Lake Placid and Host. Yeah. So it is a friend's pick week, so there doesn't need to be a a connection connection between them, I guess. Until then, you can always find us at our website, podcemetery.com, or on Twitter, at podcemetery. Subscribe in your podcatcher of choice. Five-star written review is the biggest help you can give us. Uh, But actually even bigger than that is sharing us with your friends. And actually, actually even bigger than that is listening in the GD first place. Thank you all very, very much. We love each and every one of you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey, any last words? The party of the first part gives the party of the second part and his associates full power to do with him at their pleasure. Everybody, everybody, get down, get down now. So stand up, don't be shy. People, 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 get up, get up, get up. Everybody, everybody, test it. I need a kidney transplant desperately. Gene Co. showed this single. You know, we never talked about the girl from Suspiria's dancing. Oh, how she does that little performance. I think there's something to be said. Oh, that performance I love. For the constant. No, it is this fun sort of like 70s thing that she's doing. <laughs> walking around with the walking microphone. Walking around. That is the best part. I really she's loved it. She's not just standing there dancing. No, but she's moving. She's walking somewhere and dancing as she walks. But it's, and we need it's to talk about fun it. To do, it's fun to watch. <laughs> I really, really enjoyed it. She's got this sass to her. This sort of like confidence, you know? I love it. Well, I'm sure they go through that era in their lives, you know, and then they move past it. I don't think there's any era in your life that you would just be the same thing for the rest of your hundreds and hundreds of years of life. If there is, I don't think it would just be exhausted. You know what I mean? I think you'd get over that with time. Plus, since they're vampires, they probably have, like, you know, they probably feel good most of the time. You know what I mean? Like, it's not just, like, with us, we eat, and it's like, oh, I didn't starve today. At best, you're like, oh, I'm so full. But them, they eat blood, and then it's, man, I feel great. You know what I mean? Pretty sure they're doing okay. Brad's not doing okay. (laughs) Well, you have to accept in my hypothetical that you are drinking blood. And they don't want to. Do they have to? This one in my hypothetical does. Well. The reason we're talking about this is because you suggested that... Oh man, if I feel like this now, imagine if I was a vampire and lived hundreds of years... They must feel emotionally exhausted all the time or whatever, even more like, oh, man, I feel really bad for them. I would say they're not allowed additional things to make them sad more than just their age in this scenario. You just have to treat them like normal ass vampires. I feel bad for vampires because, you know, they're depressed vampires. Okay, they'll burn up in the sunlight. Swan stole my music and framed me! It's like when somebody says, oh yeah, my two favorite movies are 
Godfather and Scarface. He's like, that's like saying that your two favorite foods are lobster and Skittles. <laughs> I, 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 I. She was in Shall We Dance? I don't know what that is. Yeah, she hasn't done much. She was a dancer in Honey. Shall We Dance is the movie where um, Richard Gere dances and it's like Jennifer Lopez and Susan Sarandon. <laughs> like Susan Sarandon is like the real love interest and Jennifer Lopez is like his dance instructor slash partner. And it's a it's a it's a I wouldn't even call it a romantic comedy. It's kind of like a feel good sort of romance movie. Okay. Pavi thinks that his sister's beautiful and would love to wear her face. <laughs> 